Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. And Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students experience college life, nurture their diverse interests, and make friends and memories that last a lifetime. You can apply online at precollege.brown.edu. Today on Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, congestion is taking a toll on Boston. So should Boston take a toll on congestion? We'll open the lines and ask you if we should bring congestion pricing to town. Then food writer Corby Cummers here with some unlikely Supreme Court analysis. Could Trump's affinity for his SCOTUS nominee have nothing to do with conservatism, but with ketchup? And Newman Emily Rooney is here, and you know what that means, her famous list of fixations and fulminations. Then it's on to some much-needed comic relief by way of Tom Papa. The actor, writer, and comedian has a new book, Your Dad Stole My Rake and Other Dilemmas. That more is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about congestion pricing. A MassDOT, Department of Transportation, pilot program is included in the state budget, is now being reviewed on Beacon Hill. The governor has to decide whether to sign. It's aimed at easing congestion on highways by offering commuters discounts if they avoid peak traffic hours. And again, there are other cities like London that's done not only that, but raise the cost of driving during peak hours. We'll take calls, ask if a pilot or even a permanent congestion pricing program is the way to go when it comes to fixing this, uh, this disaster on so many of the roads. 877-301-8970. You know, I didn't know if you mentioned this before. If what you did, I, I, I'm sorry, but Joan just emailed to remind us that Washington, D.C. I didn't mention it. Charges that more. I did not. Okay, no, charges more to ride the Metro, their version of the T during rush hour. I did not. That's a thought as well to get more people. Yeah, that's uh, actually a good point. But other people have said there are very fixed schedules, healthcare workers, and that. You think of this. Mm. I don't know. They still do this so rigidly, but the seven to three, three to eleven, eleven to seven kind of shift. But My kids could, work in a hospital. Seven to seven, eleven. It's all. It's rarely at rush hour times. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons they schedule them like they do. Yeah, but you could certainly always stagger those somewhat too. I would think. You know, what would be very useful, Margaret, for useful, this discussion. Jim? Could you? You haven't done it. Could you tell the story about the runners beating the? Green line? 877. Let me tell a story about the driverless red line train. <laughs> Three zero. That's Marjorie's that was the other best story, story of years. And by the way, you're allowed to laugh at that because no one was no hurt. One was hurt. Was no really one was hurt. That's right. The, computer, the commuters were a little concerned when <laughs> the red line train coming from Braintree into Boston raced right through the JFK station. And they thought, hmm. Then they realized there was no driver. And you should tell the end of the story. Even Everything though, was fine. No. Even though there was no driver, he got a pension. Did you know that? <laughs> Let's go to Tim in Medway. You are next on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about congestion pricing as a way to deal with the nightmare on the roads. Hi, Tim. Hi, how are you? Excellent. So um, I've always thought, and as Governor Dukakis brought up the other day, that with, you know, the population being so young, becoming, you know, licensed drivers, there's going to be more and more people on the road causing more and more congestion. 
and something needs to be done about it. Um, unfortunately, he brought up how um, it's like billions of dollars for just the north to south uh, stations being connected. Well, can I and, interrupt um, you? Can I interrupt you? He actually yes. disagreed with the estimate. The estimate from the Baker administration for connecting north and south station, north-south rail, was somewhere in the $12 billion range, and Governor Dukakis was saying, and again, I don't know where the truth lies, but that, that is a highly, highly inflated estimate that it would cost a lot less. But it's not cheap regardless. Go ahead, Tim. Well, yeah, so it's definitely not cheap, but it's only, I'm guessing, going to get more expensive. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, more, more public um, trans, transit needs to be, you know, given to, you know, say, you know, uh, places around the state so they can get to Boston without being in traffic. And it just needs to be better, better run, I think. Well, you by know? the way, you know, there's, you know, there are debates and there'll be center stage in the gubernatorial race between whoever the Democrat is who ends up being the nominee against Charlie Baker, South Coast Rail, East-West Rail, uh, obviously North-South Rail that we just talked about. And not to mention, Tim, one of the things that Marjorie and I are obsessed with, people like Seth Moulton is too, because he used to work in this industry, is high-speed rail, where the United yeah. States is trailing everybody in the industrialized world, particularly China, I should say. We are getting nowhere fast. Well, you also just Literally. think, what a difference Thanks, it would Tim. make for the economy of the state if but, you could get between Boston and Fall River and New Bedford really quickly. You know, it, South would, Coast it, Rail. it would be, it would be, it would be a, a game changer. It would be such a wonderful thing. So, it, by the way, we're going to talk about this later with Shirley Young, but I may as well mention it now. There's a lot more plans down because of the terrible traffic at the seaport where you can be stuck for literally mm. hours. Um, boats coming in from Quincy, know, boats ferries, coming in ferries, from, yeah. from North Station down to Fan Pier and all this kind of stuff. You know what? I, I haven't told you this because we haven't had time to talk much off the air. You mentioned that how difficult, how long it takes to get to Fall River, New Bedford. Yep. Last Saturday, I think it was, I ran in from Fall River. <laughs> I ran from Fall River to, I think it was our studio in Brighton. Yeah. And I beat every car that was on. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that or you didn't? I didn't know did that, Jim. That? No, you didn't tell me yeah, that. Yeah, um, by the way. Okay, Catherine. By the on way, the not so- only did I beat it, I stopped for lunch <laughs> along the way, had a leisurely lunch, <laughs> talked to some fans. Which we'll go to and then I got <laughs> Jim's favorite restaurant. Okay, Sorry. Catherine from the South Shore. Hey, hi, Catherine, Catherine. How are you? Speaking of the South Shore, hi. Hi, good morning, people. Good and morning. To you. Um, I called in because, yes, I, there, we can all do so much better and there's things that we can do right now like why and there's long-term things well like right now like exploring this pilot program for higher fees coming into the city yeah mm-hmm. the tea um the tea having higher fares like dc does here's some crazy ideas employers right now are so um opposed to teleworking and there's so many in jobs where it can be done from yeah, home right. and, and i called because my specific example is I'm a former state worker who took a job that I could take the train to. My office was moved, requiring me to drive 31 miles five days a week through rush hour traffic. Oh. And, and teleworking was um, a hope. And after getting hit twice, the second time where I was injured and my car was totaled, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. And the governor signed an executive order to decrease carbon emissions. And, and, you know, the state offices aren't talking to each other. The Department of Transportation has all these programs, and they're reaching out to other state agencies. But the other state agencies aren't willing to work on, you know, uh, commuting sharing and, um, 
uh, carpooling and teleworking and all the other possibilities we can do now before we spend the billions of dollars that are needed for the North-South Rail. Yeah, Catherine, we'll make you a promise. Next time the governor is with us for his monthly Ask the Governor, we will put that uh, to him. So thank you for you know, that bringing us up to speed. a lot of sense. Some totally sort does. of transportation czar or, or czarina for the... Just to kind well, of we have co- one. Stephanie Pollock. Well, is, I mean, but she's talking about like kind of bigger things. I mean, I'm talking about somebody coordinate oh, workers. Oh. You know, uh, uh, some sort of place you can email. Well, I would assume, and this may be really naive, what? that mayors like Marty Walsh are have staff people in economic development who are talking to employers to urge greater flexibility. Right, but I'm thinking, how many people work for the state? Oh, oh you mean be, within, oh, as yeah, Catherine was saying. to say, yeah. to try to coordinate state workers so there can be more ca- carpooling or job sharing or not these ridiculous um, moving of offices to consider that. I mean, look at the district attorney's office from Cambridge. It's out in the middle of nowhere, and I had to drive forever to get there. Hmm. But it's in one of those W towns. I don't even know where it is. Well, it's not Cambridge. It's called Middlesex, Middlesex County. Middlesex County. Well, it used to be right Thank there you. in Cambridge, yes, and now it it's off in the woods somewhere. Uh, let's go to Andrew in Rhode Island. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hi there, guys. How are you today? We're Fine, well, thank you. thank you. So, anyways, I am 60 years old. I was born in 58, grew up in Framingham. I've grown up in the greater Boston area. And just over the years, I've seen more and more congestion. Yeah. I'll do everything I can to avoid the area. And, and not to sound cynical about it, I mean, in 1960, there were 260 million people in the U.S. Now there's 330, 70 million more people. And they're clogging the urban areas. Right. And, and again, not to sound cynical, I'm really not sure what a solution is. Public transportation, it, it helps what? Maybe 1% of the population, but when you've got so many people out there, maybe the answer is um, eminent domain where we widen the roads by twice as much as they're already doing. And I know that there's tons of construction and widening of roads going on. By the way, by, 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 but don't leave public transit. I think, by the way, I think the percentage of people use it is well more than 1%. I'm not sure. But regardless, uh, invest in it. I mean, the people with whom I speak who could use public transportation who don't is because they tell or hear horror stories about the inability to get from here to there in a reliable amount of time. And my assumption is... Uh, is if, this gets back to the first call I think we had today, if people believed that new money was going into a far better public transportation system and that it was going to stay in that system, people would support it. I don't, I mean, I don't want to drive every day. I'd love to be able to take uh, the T, and I'm assuming most people listening, if it was reliable, would feel the same way. So I'm not discounting your other ideas, but don't write off public transportation yet at all, Andrew. You know, when you think about it, there's, there's a, spot, a spot in Route 3 by Weymouth where the road goes, coming, leaving Boston, it goes from three to two lanes. Yeah, I know, yeah. And then coming back to Boston, it goes from two to three. There is such a backup all the, time, know, all the time on that place where it goes from three to two constantly. You think about having an extra lane. I tried lane. to go into a wake of a good friend of ours several years ago, by the way, and I didn't get to it because of that congestion. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. It's, 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 it's just, you know, I don't know if, if it's feasible to widen the road and I, you're just inviting more cars, I guess. But if you have to drive that every day, I, I just shoot myself. Well, I you know, it's interesting, it. Andrew, thank you for the call. I've said this before. I don't think I've seen studies about this, but I'm sure they exist. And next time we discuss a topic like this, the psychological toll... When I have an occasional meeting, I I mean, luckily, because of our hours, I don't have to do rush hour. I leave, I come to work before rush hour, and I usually leave 
after rush hour, so it's safe. But when I occasionally have to go to a meeting after work and have to drive west on the Mass Pike at 6 o'clock at night, yeah, it's, forget little, it. it's like tourism. Why is the Mass Pike so much of a traffic jam all the time? What, what's going on? I just don't get it. It's the same thing. You could be driving in the Mass Pike on a weekend, and all of a sudden it's not just when you're trying to get off on 84 there to go to New York City. Somebody, you're just sitting there in traffic. You can't figure out. There's no accident. And you have the Waze thing, and they'll, and they'll indicate the traffic, but they won't indicate why. You, yeah. Is it a cop? I mean, who knows? I was last Friday. I had a meeting in Framingham after work, and I was driving on the Turnpike yeah. West. 17 older people ran by me. Do you know that? <laughs> on the, the breakdown lane of the people. Yeah. One had a walker. I mean, it was, it was an incredible situation. Well, that's situation. another thing. The breakdown lane becomes very tempting in a lot of these situations. So you see people but do it. By the way, that is really dangerous, it's dangerous. when people do that. I Unless there's certain roads where you're, where you're allowed to do it yeah. during rush hour. You know that? I don't want to do it now. But most roads you're not allowed well, to do it. It's really dangerous. I'm about the state police. I better keep out of the breakdown lane. By the way, we're at, don't take another call because we're Oh, out we're out of time. time. Oh, we're okay. sorry. And I'm we'll, sorry. We promise we're going to stay on because it's actually, you're obsessed with it and I'm semi-obsessed with it. Coming up. So we're going to talk about it. And because we have all these opportunities here in the state to do something. There are all these different plans. Well, you know around. what the beauty of elections is, yep. I should say? This stuff is going to be center stage you in know what? these debates, like big the, time. Chris Dempsey, the guy that shut down the Olympics, he should well, run, he didn't single. He he should run for office on a, in a traffic platform. Well, he's head, I told you, he's head of that transportation mm-hmm. for mass thing. Now, that's a Tall, first job. Tall, good took. looking, can talk. Yeah, I know, but uh, can I tell <laughs> And he's talking about traffic all the time. What more do you need? Exactly. Coming up, a sobering moment for the Trump International Hotel. Literally, looking. People are out. He has a good position on the issue. He's got a great position on traffic. He is our traffic man. I think it's a platform that could go somewhere in the 2018s, Jim. People are out to strip the Trump Hotel of their liquor license. Our food writer, Corby Cumber, joins for that and a lot more of food news. He is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan broadcasting from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. An 8-0 to zero vote came down to force a major business to justify why it should keep its alcohol permit. No, this didn't come from the Supreme Court. It came from D.C.'s almighty Advisory Neighborhood Commission, <laughs> and it was delivered against the Trump International Hotel. But speaking of the Supreme Court, could President Trump's SCOTUS nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, have nothing to do with conservative values, but with condiment values, we'll explain. Joining us for his take on these and other headlines about food culture and food policy is award-winning food writer Corby Cummer. Corby's the senior editor at The Atlantic, columnist for the New Republic, and a restaurant critical of Corby Cummer. Good morning. And to you. Great to see you, Corby Cummer. Let's start with the Trump Hotel, since Jim and I got to visit there when we were down covering the inaugural. and We We didn't visit. We snuck around the lobby. We snuck around the lobby. We skulked around. They had these massive bottles of champagne in the middle of the lobby. In little carts, right? And this spectacular bar. It was pretty swank, I must say. But uh, what do you make of this attempt by the by the neighborhood group to go after the president's character? <laughs> so it's kind of like the Civil War within Washington, D.C., where I spend part of every week. So the Trump Hotel is in this beautiful Renaissance Revival old post office mm-hmm. building, a much beloved building in Washington beautiful. that many people are just heartbroken has gone to uh, be owned by Trump. 
It's so much like the, the Trump Hotel, where foreign lobbyists make sure to stay because they want to cultivate the Trump administration. It's the center of the emoluments clause <laughs> lawsuit to try to deny Trump of profits that lobbyists are trying to influence him by giving money to his businesses. So this is another way of trying to attack Trump where he lives, which is to say his bank account. So this council of a community of complete liberals, which is very far from the Trump Hotel, it's not even where, it's not even the District of Washington where the uh, Trump Hotel is, is saying he is not a fit character to own an alcohol-serving business. And by the way, but that's the criteria, even though they have no jurisdiction over this, it's sort of like the suitability clause that caused problems for uh, the uh, uh, Steve Wynn in Everett with his casino, there is a provision in the alcohol permitting thing in Washington. I'm assuming in many communities okay. you have to be of good character. Well, you think he's on. of good character? I, I, I read sections of that ki- cli- uh, Kitchen Confidential by the late Anthony Bourdain. I mean, mm-hmm. if you were talking about good character of people who ran uh, liquor establishments and restaurants and bars, I think we might have a a, a real right. problem on our hands. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and I think that we might be talking about a, a bartender case, which really illustrates the character problem among, among bartenders. Uh, but in this Wait, case, that? Um, that was a sexual assault in New Orleans, a guy arrested. Oh, oh, oh okay. Um, but in the case of the Trump Hotel, you know, I did this sort of sting myself. I snuck in. Mm-hmm. I was doing a piece for Vanity Fair about Trump wine, and the only place you can get it was in it, Washington is the Trump piece. Hotel. Great Thank piece. you. So what I noticed is there are these complete pros who are serving the wine. And as I wrote in the piece, they did everything they could to stop me from having Trump wine because they care about good wine. Um, and so they're going to be out of jobs, too, if this... Of course, this isn't going to work, this council. I don't think so. But it's a way that everybody is trying to use the law, like, uh, like not Schneiderman, but his department of the Attorney General in New York, in New York State, State yeah. is trying to attack Trump in ways that he can't pardon himself. No, he's for. not. Atta- he's trying to enforce the law so Thank that you. if yeah. you violate <laughs> non-profit laws around a Trump cha- a tra- uh, charity. Speaking of uh, Donald Trump, there is a semi-tongue-in-cheek piece. Uh, I don't know if it was in New York Magazine or where it was, about the real reason he picked Brett Kavanaugh. It's not his politics, but because of their mutual affinity for ketchup. We all know the President of the United States likes ketchup on steak, which I know appalls many people. I used to do that when I was a kid. But apparently when Brett Kavanaugh was at Yale, he did what a lot of young kids in this country did. He would put either ragu, if he could afford it, or not, he would put ketchup on his spaghetti. I, don't, I mean, I never did that. I never liked it. But it is a, a pretty widespread American tradition. Is it not, Corby? I, uh, you know, I have to admit, I learned about this, reading about Brett Kavanaugh's Yale uh, preferences. But what I thought was, it's so easy to be reflexively snobbish, and I certainly am worried you about the Supreme are, Court. Oh, but sorry, yes. when you think about ketchup... Imagine how easy it is to catch free ketchup from various fast food restaurants. Exactly. So you've got your free sauce. And what are you having? You're having sugar and tomato concentrate, which is what is, are the main components of most canned tomato sauces. But I, so I thought, you know, that's not such a bad idea. All it is is putting more high fructose corn syrup over your pasta than you ordinarily would. But it's pretty similar. It's lots of salt, some clove, and... Tomato concentrate. Here's a test to see where you are culturally. Who is arguably the most famous consumer or purveyor of ketchup on spaghetti in recent television time? 
Go you're, ahead. Going, you're going to have to tell me the answer to this. Honey Boo Boo. <laughs> of Boo-Boo's, course. Honey Boo Boo's mother. That was their favorite. They called it Skeddy, did they not? Isn't that what yeah, they called it? Yeah, they called it, it Skeddy. It made me wonder, where is Honey Boo Boo now? This piece was from six years ago. No, the can show didn't make a... She's got to be a teenager by now. She may be. I don't know. Well, I, don't I don't think it's we going well. Well, well this Honey might become a rallying cry in the culture wars. Ketchup on pasta. <laughs> by the way, is it, but this isn't a no-no. I was reading this thing about you know uh, Italian cuisine, and the ultimate no-no, obviously, is putting ketchup on spaghetti. But it is, uh, I mean, it is sort of mainstream, and not just for low-income people. It's sort of mainstream when kids are young, not me, but when you're getting, why are you making a face like that? I don't know. It just seems like spaghetti sauce is not that expensive. Uh, you can get pretty cheap spaghetti sauce. And the only yeah, but when you're like a student, when, as Corby just said, you get the little uh, well, ketchup yeah, packets you get the and little squeeze ketchup them package the thing. If you really Yeah, I frankly don't think it's that bad an idea. It's just the difference is sugar. It's just, it's just it's putting more syrup on your pasta. Mm. Okay. We're talking to Corby Kummer, our food guy who obviously likes ketchup on spaghetti. It's based on his comments the last couple <laughs> of minutes. I can the worst things. So, yeah. Corby Kummer, I, you know, there was a great piece about... Uh, People trying to move from uh, McDonald's to a McDonald's and this, these <clears throat> poaching regulations. And in Massachusetts, you know, we have the same sort of uh, preventions from people, even in, in, in very low level. No, but the big debate in Massachusetts and the bill that was pending never came out. The non-competes, another the term non-competes, for no poaching, right. is mostly in the tech industry with big boys and girls. I don't know what this is. No, they've got it. I've heard about it with yoga teachers oh, I didn't of know all that. things. But Namaste, this, but the, people who don't make very much money. But can I tell you something? Yoga the argument teachers. there is not sympathy for the individual tech person. The issue is it stifles innovation. The problem here is it stifles livelihood. When you can't transfer right. a franchise to franchise so you can go from seven and a quarter an hour at one McDonald's to nine an hour, it Excuse can me. mean feeding your family. But just before I leave this, I want to make the point that is true in Massachusetts. They can do it with low-level workers in Massachusetts, and in some cases, because I was uh, reporting a story on this, oh, they do. Yes, but go ahead, Corby. Cummer. This is like plantation slavery it really updated is. It really is. with law. It's saying you came to work at a $14.50 Oh, an hour job. You want to raise, you want to become a manager at another McDonald's, which would sound like the easiest transition in the world. Well, because McDonald's is a franchise and it's only thinking of ownership and protecting mm-hmm. its owners, it protects its owners by saying, we won't let somebody desert you for another McDonald's across the street that's going to pay your worker uh, a slightly higher wage, although it's an incredibly low wage, because we have a no-poach clause. So they go across the street and they find they can't get out of their contract. It is the kind of thing that should apply only to high-tech talent. If at all. Not but if at all. Yeah. But, but this kind of plantation mentality, we own you, you can't improve your lot by going across the street and earning still a, a bad wage. It's, it's incredible that it exists. In Do you know who the plaintiff, lead plaintiff in this case is? Do you know? No. Honey Boo Boo. Actually, you're in the, <laughs> no, that's not true. I just want to see if you're paying attention. But actually, do you know who the lead? They're eight attorneys general. By the way, a number of fast food operations have on their own, I mean, I, I don't want to say voluntarily, under pressure, eliminated the no poaching things. Burger King, for example, has not. Uh, but you know who's leading the charge among eight uh, state attorneys general who are suing to get rid of these things? Maura Healy. I mean, she is the lead lawyer or the lead attorney general amongst the pod of attorneys general trying to help, as they say, as you say, get rid of this plantation mentality. And there's a bill up at Beacon Hill. Jason Lewis that was very much involved in and pr- Will putting, the, yeah. putting the kibosh on the, uh, on the uh, marijuana and, legislation. And this is just a sign of in the era 
of the Trump administration and rolling back all kinds of federal protections. States are the activists, and states yeah. are the yeah, one who are taking the lead. Yeah, that's a very good point. We're talking to uh, Corby Cummer. So do you know Phil Vettel? Is that how you say his name? I certainly do. Tell us who he is before we tell you tell us what he did. So Phil Vettel, I think oh, he sorry, pronounced his name, is yeah. this terrific guy who for 30 years has been the Chicago Tribune's restaurant critic. And he's an old-fashioned newspaper man. You can imagine him chomping a cigar and telling <laughs> stories at McCrady's late at night over beer and scotch. He's just a great guy. He's a funny writer. He's a tough and good reporter. And he's always been anonymous, and he's protected his photo. And it hasn't been hard for him. He was generally protected. But he decided, the way most restaurant critics who are left, of the very few who are left paid to be restaurant critics, that between the places that pretend they don't recognize him and do and the places that should recognize him and don't, his anonymity doesn't matter anymore. He can't tell when he's being treated well or badly based on whether they recognize him or not. So he published his photograph. But I think it is more than that. I thought that, that he was, to use his words, I read his column on, on his, you know, exposing himself. Well, that's a poor choice of words. But Coming you know, out. Thank you. Or that, whatever he did. Whatever he did. He's very straight. Is that, is, uh, he wanted, uh. as he called it, level the playing field. Because he said, and I'm paraphrasing, in the era of the Internet, the big boys, the, exp- the really high-end restaurants, have the ability to do searching around and figure out who is Phil Vitell or whatever. But some of the more ma and pa places wouldn't have that opportunity. So he thought that thing was unfair. So there was an equity issue that I think he was addressing, which is also quite wonderful, which reminds me of one of my favorite stories that sort of involves you. The, is the guy for the Washington Post, what's his name? Tom Sitzma. Tom Sidsman, is he the last major food critic who has not shown his face? No, there's also Craig LeBan, my former intern from The Atlantic, who is the Philadelphia Inquirer. He has, like, uh, gone to court over this. But my favorite story, which we've told you, and I know we've told on the air, but not in a while, when we were down for uh, Inauguration Week, we uh, did our, I did my television show from CNN for the week, and we did our radio show from right. NPR, and they were wonderful to us. We had your friend Tom on, I think because of you from the oh, Washington yes. Post. Right. He was a fabulous guest, really engaging, he's funny, warm. Guy. He was terrific. Gave us some great restaurant recommendations. And as he's leaving, I think it was Amanda, <laughs> our coworker, takes his photograph and is about to post it online. Yeah. And I think what happened, I may get this slightly wrong, Tom says, politely, what are you doing? I just want to post your photograph so people know you're on the show in a few minutes. And the guy goes into like an abject <laughs> panic because he's been hiding his yeah. identity for whatever, two decades we or something. We're about to blow it. So we scotched the, uh, you know, we the it, thing. Corby Carver, you're a great food critic too. So what, what, if you know you are... Uh, outed if you go to a restaurant. How do you handle that? Well, the, it's all. It, it, when I was starting my restaurant career, uh, magazine um, reviewing career at New York Magazine, a friend said, "When you're recognized, it only gets worse." And she was right. It always mean? gets worse. It means the waits become longer, the service becomes tentative. Um, you get food that you don't want. You have sudden mysterious pauses because they've called in other cooks or because they've decided they literally... Really? Or because they decide they want to give you something that you didn't order, you didn't order right. And it just drags out and makes very awkward an experience. You want to be like what your readers are going to experience. And so you work very hard to be anonymous and you can't really figure out 
is this just bad service? Or have oh, I been recognized yeah. and they're trying to worry? It's very odd. So and do you make reservations under phony names? Always, sure. You do? Always. Of course. I mean, it's very easy to do that. It's easy to get credit cards that don't have your name. But it's not easy in the age of the Internet. Right. And, you know, once Twitter and Facebook started, it's a real job to try to keep your picture out of the papers. You know, one last thing about the phasing out of, of food critics. You know, I, I get it. There's, you know, there's Yelp and all these mm-hmm. g- competition from the Internet. But it's kind of... I want the person that knows what they're talking about telling me, you know what? Well, it's not only that. It's the person who you think is uh, full of um, garbage. And when that person raves about a restaurant, you know you won't like it or vice versa. But the fact is it's consistent. You get a sense of that person's taste. So you judge your own against that person's. And that's why critics, I think, are really useful. I know, but it's why I'm hoping that they aren't gone entirely because you want to depend on those people, especially if you're going like you just went to New York City. I mean, what do you do? You ask Corby Karma where to go in New York City. Me too, but let me me just quickly add. We haven't scheduled this for discussion, but there is a Toronto restaurant critic who is trying to raise subscriptions to this very good restaurant criticism site he has started. His name is Chris Nuttall-Smith, and he got a certain television following because he was was judge on a reality TV. But he is a really good restaurant critic, and he says media is no longer um, funding restaurant meals, which they're not. And if that's happening in Canada, which is so much more enlightened than we are and has had a better funded media than we have, I'm rooting for his site. He's the first major restaurant critic who's trying to publish his yeah, own. But you don't understand, I understand the financial, the financial difficulties, particularly newspapers and magazines, print, have found themselves in. But if there is a subject matter where interest is growing and Huge. not declining... It's eating out. I mean, it is exploding. There's a new restaurant in Cambridge where I live practically every time you blink. The only question is, will media be able to afford the restaurant meals, you know, the at least three restaurant <laughs> That's meals? true, because you have to because bring friends. It's, because it's, die, yeah. it's dying every place. So it's the expenses involved in the restaurant oh, meals. Sure. That's true. If you go out with f- four people for dinner in a nice restaurant, you're talking a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Corby Cummer, um, you could give me a little help on this story in, in north, uh, northeast Washington where people have been going to these farmer's markets there, uh, uh, low-income people for quite some time. We're using their SNAP um, money, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Food stamps. Yes. I don't understand. Is this a, is the story a technical problem, or is this some big-time crackdown on people at, with farmer's markets? You're so right to be confused because it's a cross between the two. Okay. Here is an example of rollbacks and knocking people off of public benefits by little tiny whittling behind the scenes weird technical ways that winds up denying benefits to people. So what is this? Um, Eight years ago I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that farmers markets had to have wireless um, had to have wireless card readers so that people could use their food stamps which as you know are plastic credit cards. But uh, farmers markets couldn't accept them unless they had those little things that look like old-fashioned cell phones that transmit your credit card information. And there were a couple of uh, states, including Iowa, that were doing pilot programs to give them. They were expensive, like $800 a piece, to the farmers market vendors. And it wound up that you know, a miracle, the federal administration, as part of the farm bill, started equipping farmers market vendors with these snap card wireless readers so when that they could again? accept them. Gosh, it's Roughly. about, uh, it was between two th- around 2012. 
that it started. And, and it got federally funded. This was terrific. But through some quirk I had no idea of, there was one software vendor in Austin, Texas, which was a city I went to report on because it was a farmer's market um, leader in the whole country. So this software company got the contract to be the place that was the interface between the SNAP benefit card and the place, the federal government, that would say, yes, the SNAP benefit person is legitimate, give them her benef- give her her benefits, double the value of the food stamps when uh, used in farmer's market for fresh produce, which all kinds of programs, and even the farm bill, $100 million of benefits in it. So now the federal government, in its wisdom, has decided to cease business with that software vendor in Austin, Texas, which effectively robs SNAP benefit people of being able to use their cards But is that the goal? Markets. Is it about a, a backdoor way Who's going to screw people out of their... Be- but is that the conventional wisdom, or is it that they just don't like it a vendor? It certainly looks like uh-huh. it, because the, the, benef- the wireless readers don't work with other software. And so it's this, it's this bureaucratic backdoor way of shutting people out of their benefits. And one of the reasons it's important, besides the fact that it's healthy food, obviously, uh, Tina Martin did a piece on my show the other night, Greater Boston. We do these Greater Bostonians, these, these people have done wonderful things in their community. And I can't remember the neighborhood in, in, uh, in Boston. I actually emailed one of my producers to, and they asked her to tell me, and my apologies, I forget. But it's in a place that's a food desert, essentially, at least for healthy foods. So this is it. Not only is there healthy foods, but this is the place in that neighborhood where you have an opportunity to get healthy foods that not only help local farmers. I mean, it's like a threefer kind of deal. So uh, this is bad on all fronts, not just for low-income people who don't have access to much healthy food, the people who sell it, who are local, you know, what are farmers, whatever. So it's... This is the kind of backdoor outrage that's happening every day with EPA rollbacks and now with yeah. farmer's market that you don't see, you're not aware of, and then you think... Wow, we made so much progress in the past five, seven, eight yeah. years, and it's being whittled away and denied. Well, it's also such a lovely thing to go to a farmer's market and shop because the food is fresh. It's wonderful. One it's of my favorite tweets was, so there's a farmer's market happening across the street from us, the most beautiful in Boston, the Copley's Square Friday yes, it is. market, it's a fabulous market. And there were so many stands that starting even like four years ago said, we welcome uh, EBT cards. We have SNAP benefits. Use it here. Well, you know, there was a big fight, and this was about five or six years ago, about a woman with a EBT card that tried to buy a whoopie pie at a farmer's market with oh, her I daughter. Remember, this story. remember that? And the vendor wouldn't sell it to her. Said you shouldn't be using these. It this became money a big whoopee, national story. pies, and um, she, the woman, the vendor, held her ground. But a lot of people said, "Come on." Come on, you're at a farmer's market. The kid sees a whoopie pie. You've got snap. Uh, you've got snap benefits. You're well, she say just no. wasn't getting double value food coupons, exactly. which she would have if she'd used it for fresh fruit. So, and by the way, I think Mattapan was the neighborhood. Chelsea and I were just talking. I think Mattapan was the neighborhood where that woman was. Makes sense. Doing more. Uh, before you go, uh, there is apparently a drink of the summer, and it is summer, and I like drinking, and I haven't had it. So, how do you pronounce this? Aperol, Aperol. spritz. Is, is, so, what is this? As hot as we hear? So, can we uh, link this to ketchup over pasta? How? <laughs> because it's full of sugar. So, the oh. reason that people like Aperol is because it's like syrup. So, it's this adult syrup with fruit and herbs in it. I like it. I don't like it as much as Campari, which is yet sweeter. But it's the similar thing. It's made by Campari. 
And it's an example of a social media marketing campaign. I was just going to yeah. say, that's the most important that's part of the story. That's all it is. Yeah. It's yeah. just saying if you put marketing values and you get really young people to wear funny hats and sunglasses and, and wave fans that are actually very pretty and yellow with an, I am drinking an Aperol spritz, and they're sexy and they're cute, this works. Pretty okay. color. Hey, before you go, uh, we're out of time, but we have to remember next week, uh, we got all excited about metal straws. Marjorie's been using them nonstop. Oh, yeah. See my we got an email straw? yesterday. So saying proud the of manufacture yeah. of metal straws is horrible. Is like causing huge environmental damage. So we're going to do some research and we'll talk next week. However, you do keep the metal straw for a long time, we unlike do. the plastic straws, which you go every through. time we think we find a good story. No, unfortunately, Marjorie's mercury level is doubled, but <laughs> she's helping. <laughs> We'll get to right, it next pretty week. Pretty soon I'm going to be lit up at night. <laughs> Corby, it's great to see you as always. Thanks so much, Corby Kummer. Thank you very much, Corby Kummer. Award-winning food writer Corby Kummer joins us every week. He's senior editor at The Atlantic, columnist for the New Republican Restaurant Critic. Thank you very much, Corby. Coming up, Emily Rooney is here for her famous list of proclamations, preoccupations, fulminations, and fixations. Emily is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, and we are broadcasting live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Tim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to the Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. You want to say hi? Hi. Hi, Marjorie. How are you? Good. Joining us for a famous list of fixations and fulminations is Emily Rooney, host of tonight's Beat the Press. Hello, Emily Rooney. I may have to change my topics. Uh, you today. may. You, <laughs> you may have to may. change your Why topics. Why is that, Marjorie? Oh, well, wow. because we have just learned that uh, President Trump's longtime lawyer, supposed fixer, Michael Cohen, secretly taped a conversation about a payment from the president to the Playboy model, the former Playboy model. She's not a model anymore, but she was for a long time. Karen McDougal, who says she had a year-long affair with the president that began shortly after Melania Trump gave birth, and she was out with him uh, reportedly in the same hotel out, I think it was Lake Tahoe, that uh, Stormy Daniels was there in the same way. By the way, this is the New York Times 15 minutes ago. This is the New York Times. I'm guessing that the conversation had to do with getting the National Enquirer to buy her story. So this is what they call the famous catch and kill. Mm -hmm. The the National Enquirer bought her story for $150,000 and then killed it. So it never came up during the presidential campaign. So he's saying, oh, you know, the affair never happened and I knew nothing about this. But there has to be some between there about how this money was going to get paid. And by the way, for those who say, why would they get a great story like this, catch it and then kill it, the guy who runs the National Enquirer is a very tight buddy of the the candidate, well, uh, citizen Trump, candidate Trump, and now President of the United States. I mean, if this does not strike fear... Oh, actually, it doesn't. What is Rudy Giuliani saying? Nothing in that conversation (laughs) suggests that he had any knowledge of it in, in advance, meaning the payment. He says, in the big scheme of things, it's powerful, exculpatory evidence. It's yeah. laughable. But, you know, the reason I asked you who gave the famous quote, the only thing that could make me lose this election if I was found in bed with a dead girl or a live boy, the, mm-hmm. and you looked it up, Edwin Edwards, is because... Former governor of Louisiana. Exactly. It's because this matters nothing at all to, I don't no. think, his supporters. I don't nothing. think it... Uh, many people would probably think it was great that he was having an affair with a Playboy model, even if he was doing it uh, shortly after his wife gave birth yeah, to their, their child. Um, but it does well, Wait, show. wait, wait. wait. So the there's going to be a split was... screen. They're going to first go to the president and all the spokespeople, assuming we're all mm-hmm. right about this, saying, I don't know anything about this. Yeah. I did nothing, etc. Yeah. Right. And then they play sound from Michael Cohen's tape recording 
as they're scheming on how to kill this story. That doesn't have any impact well, on Well, I don't think it has any impact on the people that, that like him, the his base, or, is, their, or the Repu- I mean, if you Is it going to be an improper campaign contribution? Well, That's the concern. He, That's he's why got legal, He's got legal problems on this because the issue is exactly what you just said. Yeah. Was this an illegal a campaign kind of deal? The quote from, from Giuliani in the story where he's <laughs> saying that... Nothing in that conversation, this is a tape conversation, suggests that um, the president had any knowledge in advance. If he were to make a payment related to the woman, he said, Giuliani says, write a check rather than sending cash so it could be properly documented. <laughs> what, is, what is he talking about? That is a great line. <laughs> I mean, okay. I hope they're paying I'm Rudy a lot. I'm trying to pay off the woman I had an affair with who used to be a Playboy model. I'm going to make sure I write... Donald Trump. And what to, it, what's the memo say <laughs> on the check, right? What would it say? A lovely year. Thank you very much, Miss McDougal. No, the memo says, I don't know this woman. Yeah. I did nothing with her, et cetera, et yeah, cetera. And, she's, and she, you may recall, was the woman that gave an extensive ben interview Winnie. to Anderson, yeah, Anderson Cooper, Cooper. And I thought was totally credible, and totally and believable. 60, yeah, on 60 Minutes. Said yeah. she, uh, she was in love with the president, yeah. said that they carried was, on for months and months, and she finally broke up with him. Over he, a, he said he was going to leave Melania. Yep, over a, a crisis of conscience, and she just said she couldn't keep doing it, and she felt guilty going to visit her mother, and so she broke it off. You know, one last thing about this. While this story only says that Michael Cohen uh, tape-recorded that discussion, I would assume if he tape-recorded the discussion... By the Stormy way, this came Daniels. from the FBI raid on his office, by the way, if we didn't say this, according to the New York Times. If he taped this, he taped what about Stormy, Stormy Daniels. Daniels, and what why, about why should assume he didn't tape virtually everything? And how did they know he tape-recorded it? They go through well, everything no. they got. How did they know? Yeah. Because they raided his office and they took everything out of his office. But and he his... would just file that away and not have it in uh, some digital, you know what I mean? I, I don't. I mean, I have to say Michael Cohen. I don't want to be unkind. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's never impressed me whenever I've heard him yeah. speak as somebody who is technically savvy or wildly competent, even yeah. though apparently he did what Donald he's, Trump wanted him to do. He's wily, but not, yeah. Maybe. Well, yeah. you know, maybe. maybe even though he said he'd take a bullet for the president, part of them, part of him... Uh, knew that perhaps the president was not the, the most reliable in times of crisis. He wouldn't stick by you when the ship went down, and that's proven to be true because he hasn't stuck and uh, stayed with him when the ship went down. And, you know, you saw the pictures of Michael Cohen uh, in the early days when he was first in trouble sitting outside his office, and he was surrounded by guys that looked like they were all Sycophants. The Sopranos, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the guys yeah. with, the, with the long hair and the big cigars. Send your complaints and, to Marjorie's boss. Um, Go ahead. Well, they did. They had a very, they they had a very organized crime yeah, look to them. And, and maybe some of these people advised him that he needed to be very, very careful. So if he recorded this, we can only imagine what else he's got that we don't know about yet. Got to assume yet. he recorded many, many things. Yeah, and and you. Were I wonder how he recorded it. I don't know. Hit it under the tape recorder, uh, Rosemary I, Woods. I, I haven't the... spoken to Michael Cohen in weeks. So it's I really very easy to record know. things on your on, on your, your cell iPhone. Phone. On your iPhone, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like, wouldn't that just be stored on the iPhone? You know what I mean? It's like it's in the it's in his files. I don't, I'm not technically savvy was it, was it an eight know. track? I mean, you know. by the way, Maybe Michael Cohen wants everybody to know when he said he didn't record any conversations with the president. What he meant to say was that he had recorded yeah. conversations. <laughs> or with he the does president. have a Donald Trump Playboy model file, and he's got the various women that were. You know, there's the the uh, porn, the porn star file anyway. on the Playboy money. So that's the latest, file. according to the New York Times, just before noon. So Emily Rooney. Yes. I think last night on my television show, I teased the fact that you're discussing whether or not uh, uh, straight reporters and anchors cross the line in their editorializing. Mm-hmm. I think led by Anderson Cooper, who seconds after the conclusion of the press conference in Helsinki on Monday, said this is the most disgraceful performance I've ever seen 
Dot, dot, dot. So did they cross the line? I don't I, mean editorialists. So. You did not think no, so. No, I didn't. And, and it wasn't just Anderson Cooper, because Anderson is not really a straightforward reporter, reporter. He's more of a commentator. Anyway, but a number of others said equal things. Um, Richard Engel, who's about as straight as yeah, reporter, I agree yeah, he said for Putin, this was not just a good meeting, this was a moment. Um, let's see, uh, I get Anderson Cooper, who else? Uh, Neil Cavuto. How about, the, how about the New York Times? You know, David Sanger, and there's mm -hmm. nobody straighter than that. The shifting narrative underscores the degree to which Mr. Trump regularly picks and chooses intelligence to suit his political purposes. Mm. I mean, this is, this is a, a sea change in language. And, you know, Margaret Sullivan, who used to be the ombudsman at the uh, New York Times, now works Washington for the Post. Washington Post. And she says, you know, this is forcing journalists to do something that's not comfortable territory for them, but they have to do it. When, when and why is, do we have to do it? Because when something that egregious occurs, mm. it's patently false, by the way, for him to say that there was no meddling by Russia. Right. The, the press has to say. It's, 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 it's a lie, and, and, and if, if they wanted to say it's treasonous, say it. Well, you know, speaking of that, uh, this is not on our agenda, but I have to say the rumors that Jeff Glor is about to be fired can't be fast enough. Ugh. If you look up potted plant in the dictionary, How about it's Casper his picture. Toast. Well, can we, if, if people didn't <laughs> see Jeff Glor's disgraceful two-part interview with the president, uh, uh, he asked him a question about Russian interference. Yeah. And of course, that was in when Trump was post-Helsinki in the mode that, of course, they, they interfered. And he ended, this is the president of the United States, said, I've been saying this all along. And you assume a, even a high school journalist says, well, Mr. President, with all due respect, yeah. you haven't been saying that along. You've been saying the opposite. And this pathetic Jeff Glore Terrible. just goes on to the next question. It was yeah, one of the most embarrassing He had it all interviews. written in front of him. He couldn't think on his feet. He was totally cowed. Can I say, there's one last thing about Russia that I would say was the It's hard to pick a highlight since Helsinki was only Monday. It feels like it was I a know. year ago. <laughs> Uh, Andrea Mitchell from NBC and oh, MSNBC yeah. is interviewing Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence. And Dan Coates, I think to his credit, is a profile in courage in terms of what he said before Helsinki about, you know, this is like it was around 9-11 in terms of the red, uh, the red light warning. He contradicts respectfully his boss, the president, after Helsinki. So this is what happens yesterday if you haven't heard it. Andrea Mitchell, as she's interviewing the director of national intelligence for the president, Dan Coates, they're on stage at the Aspen Security Forum. She is the one who tells Trump's director of national intelligence that the president has invited Vladimir Putin to the White House. Just listen. First voice, Andrea Mitchell. Say, we have some breaking news. The White House has announced on Twitter that Vladimir Putin is coming to the White House in the fall. Say that again. <laughs> You, Vladimir Putin coming to Did I hear the, you? Did I hear you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be special. <laughs> so if you didn't hear that, the director of national intelligence saying, say that again, and yeah. then laughing says, okay. That's, That's going to be, be You special. know, it's funny to a degree. But it it's is frightening. Pathetic. It is That frightening. he would not let... Dan Coates, or probably anybody else. Well, John matter. Bolton extended the invitation. Yeah. So other than Bolton, there may have been nobody. Well, this is an attempt to double down, yeah. obviously to say, even though all of you fake news people say this was a disaster, of course, that includes a lot of Republicans, virtually every Democrat, and virtually every responsible foreign policy person, to prove that he's convinced it was a rousing success, we're going to continue it at the White House. And talk about giving Putin credibility. It's bad enough to give him credibility on a neutral stage in Helsinki, inviting this guy who interfered in our elections, 
to the White House is otherworldly to me. It is yeah. really, it is uh, revolting. And Which how are, about the behavior, all the body language from Putin, even when Chris Wallace was interviewing yeah. him, pushing away the data on those 12 people that had been arrested? It's like... If people haven't dismissive. seen this, Chris Wallace, while we occasionally criticize Fox News here, Chris Wallace was stellar. And at one point, he attempts to hand the hard copies of the Mueller indictments mm. from last Friday to Putin. Putin will not take them. And finally, after a number of seconds, Putin points to the, to the table, table. Put him down. and says, put him yeah. down on the table. By the way, Neil Cavuto, to his credit, he's on Fox as well. Right after yep. the Putin-Trump news conference said, one of the things he said is, what worries me is that you, meaning Trump, seem to say good things about our enemies, but not about our friends. Mm. Like, yeah. Good for him. You know, By the way, Germany there are a lot of good people Italy on, on Fox Britain. News. I mean, uh, Chris Wallace is fantastic. Shepard Smith is fantastic. It's the nighttime lineup that comes on to be yeah. a little bit difficult to well, listen that Laura to. Laura Ingram has become just absolutely cuckoo unwatchable. That smirky smile, it's, it's actually disturbing. Yeah, we used to work with her at the I other know, radio station. Yeah. So, Emily Rooney, um, we had a, a, a tragic duck boat accident between a car and a bicyclist in, in Boston. Right down the street. They've had this absolutely horrific in Branson, Missouri, 17 now dead because they've recovered the other uh, bodies. So we now have 17 dead in a boat accident in Branson, Missouri with a, with a duck boat. Um, it, it, there's video, and it's really frightening and so horrible So was it a, uh, a microburst? Was it a water ba spout? Bad, the, the, the waves just got bigger and bigger oh. as the thunderstorms were coming through, and you see pictures of this boat struggling well, to get through. there are videos of the through. two duck yes. boats out there, one of which made it in and one of which um, did not. Videos of the waves getting bigger and, and, and bigger and the, the duck boat struggling, and obviously it, 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 it flipped over and sank it. right to the bottom. Mm -hmm. People must have been caught under it because... Uh, we talked this morning, to their credit, the duck boat operators here got mm -hmm. right back to us when we contacted them. The life jackets are right over your head. So even if they had reached for the life jackets, if that boat flipped over, you wouldn't be able to get out from under it. Yeah. So it wasn't a matter of not being able to swim. By the way, there, there are 600,000 riders on these duck boats here. In Boston? Yeah. And, and the Coast Guard is the one who manages uh, the waterways for the duck boats here. And they say if there's lightning or thunder, even in the forecast, you know, within 40 miles, they have some formula. They don't let the boats go in the water. So. Yeah. But these storms can come up really, really, really quickly. quickly. Yeah. You know, before we get to your list, uh, Emily, there's an interesting story that you broached with us this morning, the Herald's been covering. Diane Wilkerson, I think people remember, former state senator, is leading an effort is, uh, amongst a bunch of leaders in the uh, communities of color who are... I think it's fair to say, urging that the three candidates of color in the DA race for Suffolk County DA to, re to replace Dan Conley, obviously it's an open seat, uh, get together and decide to coalesce Which around one, one of candidate them. of color so they don't split that vote. What do you think of that? Well, the arrogance of her to be sending any of those people a questionnaire about their qualifications mm. for the office that she was insisting that they answer. So so that her coalition could pass that around and assess who was most qualified is absolutely absurd. By the way, it wasn't just most qualified on the merits. How much money have you raised? Yeah, who were your money? supporters? Yeah. So they could assess yeah. the quality of the, the, the uh, campaign. The viability. Of, of, it's, I was actually a little bit stunned. If you but are you troubled by the concept that if it were not coming from Wilkerson at all, are you troubled, troubled by, by the, the whole concept? Because you think it's undemocratic? First of all, that you know, it's, is it really that important? I mean, I understand Suffolk, Suffolk it would be nice to have someone of color, but 
is that the whole mission here? Just to get someone of color in there as opposed to the most qualified? I mean, there are a number of other people. Well, they may think the, the candidates of color are the most Apparently qualified. Apparently they don't. That's, well, their, the, that's the problem. Well, they may that's think, why they're trying to weed a couple of them out. I don't know if that, uh, I don't they, know if that is they, true. That woman responded today, what's her name? Cam, she, she obviously felt like they were trying to kick her, get her to withdraw. Linda, she Linda said that. Champion. Champion. She said yeah, they're she trying, trying to get trying to me to out. withdraw. But, you know, if it does matter to you, and the point is made in this story, to have a person of color in leadership roles, I mean, they talked about the fact that Charlotte Gola Ritchie ran for mayor a few years ago, uh, came in second, I believe. In the, in no, the, she did, came in third. She came in third, fourth, I'm sorry. And there were okay. only two finalists, yeah, no. obviously. Um, but they talked John about that Collier there were four or five Walsh. other candidates of color, and if you were, it was important to you to have a, a leader of color, maybe it, it makes sense to have, uh, a, a, you know, to coalesce around one strong person. Can I tell you, since we mentioned Diane Wilkerson, I want to tell you, Emily, because I don't think you've heard this. Uh, oh, really? One of our Diane Wilkerson stories. Uh, we, there was a story, I don't know if it was the story or someone sent it to us when we worked at the other radio station. There was an Office of Campaign Political Finance report, as all elected officials are required to file. And it said that Diane Wilkerson spent $160 of campaign funding on a brassiere. And was so, that the one she could stuff with the... Well, maybe it was. I mean, <laughs> but in any case, Marjorie and I spent an That's hour... A fancy bra. On, uh, ...on the radio. Exactly. Well, That's wait, what we thought. Excoriating That's her, saying how unprincipled it was to spend 160 of campaign dollars on uh, a, a brassiere, on a bra. <laughs> it's just unthinkable, if not illegal. Well, we complete our hour. We're congratulating each other on how brilliant and funny the hour uh -oh. was. The hour's over, I leave, I pick up my cell phone, and I, I say, hi, it's Jim Bradley. says, hi, this is uh, Diane Wilkerson. And I start to say, well, I'm sorry, Diane, but this is, yeah. she says, if I may, she says the 160 was not for a brassiere, it was for a campaign dinner at Brasserie Joe's. <laughs> so, oops. Oh, my God. That's oh, my bad. God, it's yeah. right. That was pretty bad. Yeah. So I made Marjorie, Did you do a little correction I made Marjorie yeah. apologize. Yeah, yeah. He called me, he said, call her back and tell her we're really, really sorry. Oh, okay, so that was okay. a mild mistake. In any case, the reason Emily is here, as you know, is the following. Incomprehensible. It's out of control. But how about common sense? doesn't matter. Why not? This is the kind of thing that drives people crazy. It's your right. It doesn't matter. I have absolutely no interest. Okay, here it is. Is it thematic oh, or yeah. is it participatory? Oh, you're going to want to participate. Okay, Ooh. we're ready. I mean, this is light. Okay. I'm going to set it up that way. Good. I have a number of personal technical gremlins. Things that just follow me around, that oh. torment me, that are like, I'm sure, Jim, I know how patient you are with technology. <laughs> oh, <yes>. so. <laughs> I have a few myself. Go ahead. Uh, so, 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 like, for instance, yesterday, I, I could not get the printer to work mm. to the point where I was going to have to reroute it. At work you're talking yeah. about? Okay. This is mostly work things. And I kept going over to see why it's not printing. And that the little message kept coming up over and over again, paper jam in tray three. Mm. There's only two trays. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, That's the problem. <laughs> I, so I had to give up on that one. Okay, fine. All right, so this is a technical one, but when I, I have to log my own videos and, and, and beat the press in a system called Media Central. So every time I hit download to look at the thing, the video starts full screen and it shrinks in half. And then you hit download and then it shrinks again. To the point. <laughs> I've, I've called this to... Uh, in, in, but nobody knows how to, and so then you have to restart the whole thing, shut down, go to start over. Tell you. It's a gremlin. Marjorie could have helped you with that. I could have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Paper and pencil. Go ahead, the way to go. So the other day, I'm peacefully listening to my music list on my car's media player, 
And then I started fooling around with buttons because I don't really know what all the buttons do. I mean, mm. You probably don't. Really Shocking. Know. No. Do you? you no. I, of no. course so I don't. So I'm going through that. Then I was feeling pretty good that I'd gotten this far. But I, I goofed something up. And now every time I hit, if I want to play music, on it, the thing that comes up on the little screen says, I have to download an app. But it's some bizarre app. I've never, it's like, it, it, it's no app. They're I mean, out to get you, let me tell you. It, it's the gremlins, it's really I know. a frightening okay. story. All right, how about right. this one? Mm -hmm. My kitchen TV often turns on only the audio. So it's the black screen and just the audio. Ooh. So, you know, I fool around the thing and I hit cable on, nothing. I got to get a bar stool, stand on the bar stool, hop onto the kitchen counter, go to the top. Of course, the guys, the guys put the cable box on the top shelf of the kitchen, you know, it's way yeah, out of the way. Right. Reach, I mean, you could probably reach it from the floor, but I'm on yeah. my TV. And then, it, then you hit all on, I mean, power. You hit power. And your point is what? It's, it's a gremlin. Okay, oh, I'm sorry. It's it? a gremlin thing. Did it fix it, it, fix thing, it when you right. hit power? It fixes it when I do it every day. But How much oh would you love God. to see Emily standing on her kitchen counter, by the way? That's Can't, you just, have, I have Can't you just unplug and reboot? Unplug? Okay, next. <laughs> next. <laughs> oh, this is, this is a work thing. Yeah, please. Okay. As soon as I stop listening to a piece of audio, let's say I'm logging a piece from your show or something mm -hmm. for a pizza press or, or somebody else's radio show or something, audio um, on my work computer, the minute it stops, it rolls over to whatever else is in queue on iTunes. And half the times it's a song I like from the Killers, Read My Mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, why? I don't know. Can you explain what happens there, Marjorie? I think you have to clear your follow-up or something Thank like that. Thank you very much. No, that's clearing your <laughs> follow-up is always what I do. It's clear something, something like that. Of course, I, then I end up <laughs> listening to the music because yeah. it's, it's nice and distracting. Well, you had that with podcasts where they play, they just keep playing. But make sure one. you clear your follow-up. Clear your follow-up. That that's my strategy. Seems to be very helpful. All right. Next. There's another gremlin that follows me around. So I use my iPad for almost everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you log on to a website. I mean, you, you're, you're logging on with your name. You're yeah. using Before you know it, you know, the next day they've kicked you off. And you, you, you got to log on. Why? why? Why can't once you've logged on and then they recognize you? Is this an iPad thing? You know what the key is? Delete what? your follow-up. That's what you have to do. <laughs> Always delete All right, your follow-up. Jim, this, Isn't that is, it? this is a gremlin that must have followed you. Okay, okay. what is it, please? How, have, how many times have you heard, it's caught in vantage? Have you heard that? Yeah, it's, actually, I don't know what it means, yeah, but I've heard exactly. it. What does that mean? It's a gremlin. Okay, what is what it? So that's the technical term for the gremlin that stops video mm -hmm. from coming to the edit room, mm -hmm. down to the booth in the mm. control room that can play the video. Remember the good old days of broadcast news where you ran the video down the hallway yeah. and then you plugged it in the machine and you played it? We have to send it digitally. And so I'll sit there or you go, like, what's going on? What are we waiting for? It's caught in vantage. So is this almost over or what? <laughs> is this? You don't like this curious. one? No, it's excellent. It's excellent. What is it? All right, this is a brand new disturbing Okay, what one. is it? I now get phone calls from probable scammers because I, I don't answer them. But I got like five yesterday. Mm. And they have now uh, disabled the block caller. They have figured out a way to do that. From the other end? Clearly. There's no thing that comes up that says you can yeah, block Yeah, I the get caller. an awful lot of weird calls so on my I. cell phone now. And it's I'm on all that those Chinese, call thing. all those Chinese, uh, the Chinese the, hackers, the, the, the Chinese scam, 
No, it's, 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 I was just reading about it. Some mm. Chinese, they all speak Chinese, yeah. and they're trying to target Chinese populations, but they don't care who they get. Okay. In fact, they've even gotten bought in Boston police officers. So. Mm. But I got six of those yesterday. All right, that's enough. That was excellent. Hey, <laughs> you know, when you mentioned, before we get to what you're doing tonight on Beat the Press, you know, I haven't talked to you since uh, the 60 minute. 60 Minutes retrospective oh, yeah, a yeah, couple yeah. of Sundays ago. It ended with your father. Yeah, what did you think? They terrible short trip. I saw, I I'm so awful. glad. I didn't want to say it before it you did. I thought it was almost like an afterthought. A guy who And they was, only used stuff when he was really old, and it was like, oh my God. Well, I actually thought the stuff they used of Andy Rooney was great. Was I just okay, thought it but was late in the show. It was, it was only sh- like 45 seconds. It was Yeah, terrible. I felt the same way. Especially when, really, for a lot of us, that's the whole reason we watched it. He was there longer than a lot of those people. I mean, you know. <laughs> I thought it was really... Well, good. So I felt that was a repeat. I felt bad I'd seen that before. So uh, what are you doing tonight at uh, 7 o'clock on Beach So Press? we are doing... Um, I don't know. We've got to take a look at if there's anything to do on this Michael Cohen um, taping. But we are, we are doing some of the, the language that reporters used after the Trump-Putin uh, press conference. And then, hey, did you all see that video of the n- neighbors over in... The woman worked for Harvard. Oh, yes. And, the humanitarian initiative. Yeah. We'll talk to Kelly yeah, about it later. So whether that's a valid story just because the video goes viral you know everybody picked it up all the networks everybody picked it up because it was a viral video but was it a valid news story you know that's a good question argument between i think considering what her position is her job because it's were it not for her job it's not if she had worked at mcdonald's i agree agree. yeah and then how about the, the third one we're doing is mark zuckerberg ceo of facebook he said he's going to monitor Facebook mm. users and feeds and all that, but he's not going to take down things like Holocaust deniers. And I read that. Because he doesn't feel that their position is intentional. We'll be watching. Yeah. <laughs> 7 o'clock tonight, Emily Rooney. Thank See you, you later. so much, as always. Emily, thank you very much. Emily Rooney is host of Beat the Press. She joins us every week, and you can keep up with her, of course, Friday night. She just described it's going to be a good show, Emily. Uh, 7 o'clock right here on WGBH. Beat the Press with Emily Rooney. Thanks, Emily. Up next, it's time for some comic relief by way of Tom Papa. Keep your title at 89.7 WGBH. He is a riot. The book is a riot. His show is a riot. You're listening to Boston Public Radio live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And we're broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. We're joined by someone who has essentially cornered every media market. It's not Jeff Bezos or Rupert Murdoch because he's a little too funny, too irreverent, and relatively too hirsute to be either. We're talking about comedian, writer, and actor Tom Papa. He's got a new book out entitled Your Dad Stole My Rake and Other Family Dilemmas. I'm laughing at the title. That's pathetic. Head writer from the NPR show that replaced You Know What. It's called Live From Here, which you can catch Saturday nights on GBH Radio at 6 o'clock right here on the station. And he'll be at the fabulous Cabot Theater in Beverly tomorrow night at 8. Tom, it is thrilling to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. So nice to be here. Well, let's start with this hysterical book, Your Dad Stole My Rake and Other Family Dilemmas. I mean, you really nail a lot of the family dilemmas. Like, you know, boys do stink. (laughs) (laughs) The girls do not stink. And as I said before, we're not on the air. Your dog doesn't want to go to the restaurant with you. (laughs) But you're the guy. Tell us a little bit more about what's in in this book. Yeah, well, basically the book is about my family and your family. As a comedian for 25 years, you know, 
dealing with family life mainly as my, as my subject. Whenever I'd come off stage, people would always come up and say, well, are you living in my closet or something? <laughs> How do you know so much about my life? And uh, I realized that uh, there's a more to say on it. So I decided I'm going to break down everybody that I've observed in your family and write about them. So you, I broke wrote, it. you wrote about my mother, by the way. I want you to know. And by the way, my mother had a little Bob Dole in her, and she would occasionally refer to herself in the third person. Yeah. Yeah. And the favorite piece in your book of mine, of many, is call your mother before she's dead. Yeah. Late, That's what Jim. my mother would Too say late. to me. Call your mother before she's dead. Yeah. So you really captured it. No, it's true. I, I, what do you really realize is that families, we all think we're unique and we have our own problems and we're trying to live differently. We're pretty much pretty all much the, same. the same. Yes, yeah, they're absolutely such, pretty so, much the same. much more common. Than, than we realize. You willing to read a little piece of this? Sure. Would you like me to? Oh, Absolutely. We would love you to. What are you reading? All right. Um, well, this this is it's summertime. It's beautiful here in Boston. How about um, in defense of family vacations? Love it. We're ready. All right. A vacation with your family can be a tough, disorienting, sticky, exhausting, irritating, soul-crushing ripoff. <laughs> but you have to do it. This is not your blissful, romantic getaway. This is a vacation that is made for the family, not a rational adult person. You will stand in line for things you do not like, pay for things you do not want, and order food for people who do not eat. You will go to theme parks and eat things on sticks. You will wear a bathing suit in a public place for an entire day. And you will swim in hotel pools next to people you would normally cross the street to avoid. You will play in the sand, sleep in the woods, and sit on benches. You will carry strollers up escalators, cat carriers through security, and everyone's luggage. You will pull muscles, rip shirts, and pop handfuls of Advil like popcorn, but go you must. This is your only real chance to get to know these people. At home, you don't really hang out. Everyone has their schedules and their work to do, coming in and out of the house like bees out of a hive. Then you wake up in the morning together in a hotel room and look at each other, really look at each other, and realize these people you live with are pretty weird. (laughs) So this is my family, you say to yourself. How do we all get here? Look what they're doing. The little one doesn't even look like any of us. As weird as it is for you, it's even more bizarre for the children. Sure, kids live with their parents, but to be this close for this long gets a little peculiar. I remember sitting on the hotel bed in the morning, waiting for my father to come out of the bathroom. I would think, what is he doing in there? What's taking him so long? And what are those noises? It sounded like a bear rummaging through a dumpster filled with balloons. Eventually, he'd come out and announce with a snicker, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. But there were nowhere else to go. I would stand in the bathroom in pools of water with my eyes watering, trying to brush my teeth and hold my breath at the same time, thinking, my God, how does my mother share a bathroom with this guy every day? Should I go on? No, that's, that's <laughs> terrific. It is just it is it is terrific. terrific. Well, you captured that so well. And you captured, you know, people, the book, again, is Your Dad Stole My Rake and Another Family Dilemma. It's by Tom Pappett, the gentleman we're talking to here. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of things. When you talk yeah. about the stuff that husbands lie about, you nailed it. Give us a couple. What do they lie about? Um, husbands lie about everything. You want me to find it in the book? Yeah, no, I've, got sure. it. I've got it right here. It's okay, on you page. read it. You read okay. it. Okay. They lie about how much money they have, how much money they spend, how much money they make, how much money the tickets cost, how much money they donated, how much money they tipped, how much money their bonus was, how much money golf cost, and how much money they spent at Hooters. Whoops. 
Hooters and how tall they are. I mean, you really, you really did capture that. That's exactly, uh, exactly true. Birthday yeah. parties belong at home. That's another one that we could all relate to. We've gone to those nightmare birthday parties. You got it. I mean, you got it. You got it all. I think, uh, I think families are hilarious. It's very funny to me that the whole idea of what, how a family begins is just the basis of yeah. comedy. It's tension. I mean, a husband and a wife, that starts the family. And it begins by two people looking at each other, and there's a chemistry, and it's filled with romance. The beginning, it's just romance, romance, romance. Exactly. Then, 15 years down the road, mortgages, <laughs> car payments, dead pets, living relatives. There's no time for romance. You ultimately become business partners in a horrible nonprofit organization. That's true. But then there's that cute thing she does, which kind of redeems it somehow. Yes, I celebrate it. I'm not against any of it. I love all of it, but it is an insane enterprise. We're talking to Tom uh, Papa. You know, uh, you uh, are uh, a key player, uh, lead writer, plus you do your own bit on the thing that replaced Prairie Home Companion. Yes. This thing is called, it's Chris Thiele is how he says his name, right? Live Thiele, from here. Yeah. Fly, uh, live from live here. From here. I, don't, I hope this doesn't put you in a tough spot. Garrison Keillor did nothing for me at all. And by the way, he did nothing to me either in terms of... <laughs> but, uh, I think that was... It really... I grew up loving the show. You did? I did. What I did thought you he, love about I it? I like that he created a real sense of space. It was a place. Yeah. It was like a place. Like our town. And you, yeah, and you didn't have to even make an appointment to, to go listen to it. When you got in the car at 6 o'clock here on the East Coast, and you would catch it randomly, and he just created this world that I just found very appealing. It was family. It was, a, But I understand what you're saying, and a lot of people say that. My father, when I... So I read all of Garrison's stuff. I listened mm-hmm. to the show on and off throughout the years, and it was a real honor to be named the head writer after he left. You never met him, I read I somewhere. Never, Is that true? Is I that never, weird? I never got to meet him. No, I think it's better. <laughs> I think it's probably better. And the new thing and is, like, it really takes it in a totally different direction. It totally does. But I get what you're saying. Like, my father, when I told him that I was taking it over, and I, I played one of his monologues, my father was like, who is this? Well, that's exactly how I felt. He couldn't listen to the voice. It was just a, you either loved it or you hated it. Yeah, but but that's so true about the radio. It's very, very subjective, I think. There are people that you you love and I hate and vice versa. So it's... Yeah. But I can say right now, I think everyone listening to this is probably in love with all three of us. That's right. Absolutely. We're the exceptions <laughs> to the rule. But, but your show is on 6 o'clock here. You can hear yeah. it right here on WGBH every Saturday night. And it's just great. Just like Keeler's show. It needed to go. You know, at first I was thinking, well, I, it was an honor to be named the head writer of Prairie Home Companion. Absolutely. But then when the name had to change because of the legal ease, uh, I realized, you know, it really needed to be different. It isn't Garrison's thing. It isn't that sense of place. Chris Thiele is a very different host. The music is new and exciting. Yeah, the comedy is updated and fresh. We bring comedians on the show. I do my Out in America yeah, segment every great. week. And it's a different thing. So to have a different name, I think, is probably correct. It's li- live from here. Live from yeah, here. Yeah, live from you here. Know, I, I, I met, one of, when I was listening uh, the multitude of things, Tom Papa, that you do, what I didn't list is one of the things I'm most excited about. I assume this is real. I've just read it about it a little bit. You're about to do a Food Network kind of deal? Yes. And, I, you know, when I, when I read about this, because I didn't think it was real about baking. Uh-huh. I googled you and baking, and I read this quote from you in the New York Times. Yeah. And I'm saying, is this real? 
that your sourdough starter changed your life? It completely did. That is so pathetic. I mean, <laughs> I'm, how did it, what are you talking about? What was the sourdough starter? How did yeah, it change your life? I know. Life? It is somewhat pathetic. When you're young, like as a young comedian, like you're running around and drinking and doing all this stuff, and now bread is my life. <laughs> I started baking sourdough bread years ago. Um, I, my friend taught me what a sourdough starter was, that oh. there was this living organism yeah. filled with natural yeast that bakes bread, and that's the original way that bread was made. And it was fascinating to me. I was telling my family about it, and my daughter, for Christmas, got a sourdough started for me, a sourdough starter started for me. And I started doing it, and it's addicting. There's something about the process of making this bread, and it's better than any bread you can, I've ever fed my family Bread is only flour, water, salt, and yeast. That's it. The best bread I could find them in the supermarket had 30 ingredients in it. But is that what led to you doing this? Was so it I with star- Tom Papa or yes. whatever the hell it's called? So I started as a comedian. I would travel around, as I always do, and I would visit bakeries and try and talk to the people that were baking mm-hmm. and doing all this stuff and just learn about it. And I just was an education. I just really fell into it. I, I became obsessed. So the Food Network asked if I would do a show about it, about me traveling to different cities, visiting the best bakeries and bakers that we can find in the city. And uh, we're doing a show. It's called Baked. It comes out on Food Network on Labor Day. Sounds and great. we've already visited eight cities. Boston is one of them. And uh, we just, it's so Can you tell us where you so visited uh, yes, flower, flower. flower. Oh Joanne my God, Chang. that's uh, the best. She is amazing. She she's Joanne. a genius. Amazing. I want yeah. to work for her for yeah. the summer. Yeah, she, <laughs> really. she, the, the food there is unbelievable. Not just the baking, but the soups and the salads. We and all made pop tarts. We made pop tarts. She taught me how to make the dough to uh, make these homemade pop tarts. It's um, amazing. But you know, what we did. About, uh, hold on for one second about yeah. the baking the bread. Yeah. Just one thing. Baking the bread to me, I used to do it. I don't do it anymore. But yeah. it's almost like gardening when you get your hands in there yes. and you knead the bread, then you watch it rise. How fun is it's that? It's meditative. It's yeah. organic. And then you just fill the house with the smell so, of fresh bread. Yeah, it's absolutely My family, wonderful. I have two daughters and my wife, and uh, they never asked when I was coming back from doing my shows on the road until I started baking <laughs> bread. <laughs> Well, you know, just one more thing before before I leave the topic of bread. I don't you, want to leave it. Okay, yeah, okay, let's stay because in you it. do have a wonderful essay at the end of your book yes. about just eat the bread. Yes. Now, what caused you to uh, to? Uh, it's on page two hundred and eighty. What caused you to attack this weighty subject, Tom Papa? <laughs> because I think that people are driving themselves insane with their diet. I think that people we have been eating bread for thousands of years, and now in the time that we're alive. We're not supposed to eat it. That's and right. No. We have a lot you. of other things that are poison that are put into food. Bread is not the thing that you should be blaming. I really believe it. I really think that you shouldn't. I'll read from it. Go. I don't want you to deny yourself this innocent pleasure anymore. I have friends that don't eat bread anymore. In the masochistic campaign against all things human and joyful, they have sworn <laughs> off bread. When someone tells me they don't eat bread, I have to ask, why are you even here? <laughs> Exactly. Not only do I eat the bread, but I bake the bread all the time. A lot of bread. I bake bread, feed the ones I love, and share it with everyone I know. I fill the house with smells of fresh baked bread. I have my children coming into the kitchen, opening the bread bin, and looking for more bread. 
They call me on the road and ask when I'm coming home, not because they want to see me, but because they want more bread. Everyone is happier. We have grilled cheese. We have avocado toast. We have paninis. We have bread with our eggs. We have bread with our pasta. We love bread. Bread is good. Bread is life. Bread is delicious. Who doesn't love bread? We all love bread. So why would you stop eating bread? I have friends that don't eat bread anymore. They're going to lose three and a half pounds. No one's ever going to know. That's right. And they don't eat bread. That's right. I can believe that a sourdough starter changed your life now. I actually, I can really, you know, <laughs> yeah. by the way, but speaking of bakeries, I shouldn't pump a competitor, but let me. Marjorie and I have been talking about my family and virtually all my friends are now addicted to the Great British Baking Show because yes. there's so much tension in the air. <laughs> the only way you can get away. Do you watch this thing? I do. I love it. it. How great is that It's thing? so great. And it really a, is great. It's a love fest between the contestants yes. and the judges and the well, whole. That's what, I, that's what I love about being in this bakery world at all. They're good people. Yeah. It's very rare that you find a person who is a mean, nasty individual who's baking cookies for the community. That's a great point. (laughs) So you just go, I really do feel this way. In the last year, after taking on Live From Here with this NPR audience and then doing the Food Network with all these bakery people, I'm surrounded by good people doing good things. And I'm telling you, as a career in show business, this is like a nice oasis of of good people trying to do good things and just to enjoy their lives. Do you ever rub a cinnamon bun all over your body? Do you ever do that? (laughs) No. You should try that in one of the shows. Every time, every time I go to these places and smell stuff like that, I'm like, why isn't this a cologne? Exactly. Who wouldn't want a little sticky buns behind your ears? Okay, the book is Your Dad Stole My Rake. It's Tom Hopper that we're talking to. So why is it, though, that the British baking show, now I know they're Brits and not, they're not Americans, but yeah. they do have this wonderful, you know, oh, you, you're Camaraderie. let me help you yes. with your meringue yeah. or whatever it is. And then we have these absolutely cutthroat I know. cooking shows where everybody's out to kill each other. I What's know. that about? I don't know. I guess it's an American thing. I think we're very competitive. Yeah. And it's always like, Kill or be killed, or is and it the baking versus the 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 chicken tart, the steak tartare? Yeah, with or something? big knives and big knives yeah. and meat and stuff like that. I guess <laughs> I don't know. I just yeah, ba- you sh- it should be nice and supportive of each other. Vicious, but that's but that being said, the Brit- the Great British Baking Show. It is those people are quiet and they're polite, but they're out to kill each other. Too. <laughs> oh, that's true. I'm talking to Tom Pop. So, Tom, you're at the Cabot tomorrow night. I, I, yes. I, I, every time we have a stand-up comic, which is one of your thousand lives. I have to say, if, if you were to ask me what the single most terrifying thing I can imagine doing mm-hmm. is being a stand-up comedian, when you're out there totally, I, I, obviously you're wildly successful, I know that, but is there, isn't it scary as hell to be essentially naked out, not literally, but figuratively, in front, isn't it? In the beginning, it's a little more, it's a little frightening, but then you realize, well, I'm funny, so... If anyone's going to do this, it should be me. <laughs> like, so is, is your confidence ever broken, though, in the early days when you were doing Oh, sure. This? And how do you deal with that? Uh, you just get up again and do it again. In the beginning, and you have a bad set, and I did a set once in New Jersey, and a man threw a French fry at me. Oh. And, it, and it landed on my shirt, and it had a little ketchup on the end. <laughs> so it stuck, and then slowly went down. <laughs> That was a rough night. <laughs> oh, no. And I could have quit, but, and you walk around all day 
thinking maybe I've made a horrible mistake, but then you get back on stage the next day. Weren't you Seinfeld's opening act on one of his tours? Yeah. How yeah. intimidating, speaking of intimidating, is that not yeah. wildly intimidating? I know he's a buddy of yours now, but isn't yeah. that intimidating? It was somewhat, in it was more validating. I always say that was the b biggest break of my career. Because he had enough trust in you to... Yeah, to hear, to have Jerry coming off of his show at the time, and he, him coming up and validating and saying, you're really funny That's pretty in good. a comedy club. And so funny, I want to bring you with me. Uh, that just calmed me down. It was like, okay, if he thinks I'm doing something right, I'm going to keep going. You were a Jersey kid, right? I'm a Philly yeah. boy, so there's some. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who were you, who were you following and, and idolizing when you were a little boy? When I was a kid watching yeah. comedy, it was really George Carlin uh -huh. and Steve Martin. Mm -hmm. I loved Carlin's just prolific seriousness and just going after every single subject. And Steve Martin, just for being silly. You know, I think we kind of lose track sometimes, and especially now where comedians are like the spokesman for, for uh, politics and, and all things uh, serious. But Steve Martin was like, I'm going to put bunny ears on and dance <laughs> around with my banjo. It's comedy. We should be enjoying ourselves. You know, what do you think about that? Because Colbert has kind of become the, I'm going to go after Donald Trump every time I get a chance. Yeah. John Oliver well, is giving him, giving him yeah. a tough time. And, uh, um, not so much uh, Fallon, I guess. Or yeah. Who's the third? What's the guy? that with, with Kimmel. The, Kimmel. Kimmel, thank yeah. you very yeah. much. Yeah, what do you think about that? Um, I don't know. I mean... I think if you're good at it, you should do it. Like, yeah. Colbert is built for that. His last show was that. It's what he should do. If Fallon were to try to do that, yeah. it, would, it would ring hollow. If I tried to do it, it would ring hollow. I'm very informed. I like to read about it. But it's not what I like to talk about with my comedy. I okay. like things like this, like in the book, that stuff about family that's going to last for 100 years. A joke about Trump is going to last <laughs> literally three seconds. So, or six years, depending on yeah. your point of view. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I do. So I, so I think if you're built for it, great. But, and you should do it at a high level. All these people that are kind of trying to do it just to, because it's easy, then it gets a little, um, I don't know, I don't enjoy it, it as much. It gets tired of it. It gets I, tired. Yeah, it gets and very tired. And I think tiring. people are exhausted. I think people listen to the news and they, we're all digesting it. Even if you're not trying to digest it, it pops up on your phone. Right. Your wife walks into your office and blurt something out that you didn't want to hear and uh that she saw on the news so i always felt like my act is an oasis it's a place we can go and escape and we're not going to deal with it for at least an hour yeah actually in a minute we want to ask you what we will get tomorrow night at the cabin but you know if i was your shrink and i met you the first time when you look at your resume i would say tom you're running away from something i mean i <laughs> In all seriousness, it isn't like you're an aspiring... I mean, you've achieved the whatever. Yeah. You were doing 42 things. I am right now. Why do you do... Why? Well, they all hit at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times you hear people in show business, they ask them, like, so how did you make this choice to go into this role? And they always pontificate, well, I wanted a challenge and I wanted to be Aaron Burr. And <laughs> I don't make choices. I do whatever people say yes to. And it just happened at this time where the bread show, the book, the stand-up tour, and live from here all hit at the same time. And it's not stressful to have it, all that stuff going on simultaneously? You know what? It's all writing-based. And I feel... Yeah, that's a good and, point. And I really love writing. And I feel like when I'm not writing, I'm wasting my time. So as long as I You don't find it difficult can, and hard? No. No. Oh, wow. No. She's you know writer, what's hard? I came in here last night. I came, flew in last night. I landed at 1.30 in the morning. And me and my buddy Paul, who's going to be with me at the Cabot Theater, uh, we had to go get our rental car. It's now 
almost two o'clock, and we're like a little snipey, like, oh, you know, it's hard traveling as comedians. You know, it's hard. The, the, the woman who's sitting in that little booth taking everybody's hurts information and scanning their thing as they're impatient and wanting to leave, and she's going to be there till seven in the morning. That's a very That's good a point. hard job. That's a very good Running okay around point. making jokes. Have you been at the Cabot before? I haven't. This it is, is our first time. Fabulous. It yeah. is really. So if people uh, haven't seen you do stand up, what are they getting tomorrow night there, Tom Pablo? They're going to get um, an hour and a half of escape and fun, and we're, you're going to laugh more than you will all year. I guarantee it. We Ooh. are. We are. Uh, yes. Or no, your money back. You're supposed to say, or your money back. We don't hang out at He's these shows. He's not saying, or your, or money, your back. money back. Or your money back. Or your money back. Or your money back. I'll put it. I'll put that behind yeah. it. Oof. Do you take a break in the hour and a half? Do you take no. a No. Oh, no. wow. That's very impressive. Paul Morrissey, my great uh, buddy, he goes up and does some time. Then I go up and do my thing. And it's just, uh, it's, it's what I really love to do. When you say, like, you're doing all these things and you're doing all, it really all feeds back into what I do tomorrow night which is the stand-up show. I mean, that to sit there with that audience and have that interaction, and it's in the moment. There's nobody saying you can't write this or say this or do this. It's just me and the audience, that energy transfer. It's just, uh, that's what being alive is all about. It's almost as good as sourdough bread. <laughs> so one last thing. If we don't think it's funny, how do we get our money back? Uh, there's, there's an agent somewhere in L.A. Okay. Good luck yeah. getting him on the phone. I can't get him on the phone, so I doubt you will. Tom, it's a thrill to meet you. Hey, Thanks thank so you. much. You your too. book is a riot. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much. It was very fun reading your stuff, and it was really fun talking to you. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. The actor and writer and comedian Tom Popper will be at the Cabot tomorrow night at 8 the o'clock. The Great Cabot Theater to, in Beverly. It's to fabulous. learn more about the Great Cabot Theater and the performance by Tom tomorrow, Go to cabot.org. That's, of course, C-A-B-O-T. The new book by Tom Papa is Your Dad Stole My Rake and Other Family Dilemmas. Uh, Thanks again, Tom, very much for coming in. Up next, Callie Crossy is here to talk about a different kind of Meals on Wheels. She is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We are live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library here for another hour if you want to join us. But joining us now, as she does every Friday, is the host of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, which by definition is Callie Crossley. Hi, Callie. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Were you on vacation or something? I tried to be. What does that mean in English? That means I worked every day gone day. That's not called a vacation. That's correct. I just want to be clear. (laughs) And I watch my friends go, hey, bye, we're going to the beach. (laughs) See you (laughs) there later. Why did you work? every day when you're on vacation. And because stuff had to go on the air, Marjorie. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's how it works. That's it's terrible. unbelievable, Marjorie, how that works. <laughs> well, uh, uh, tell us about our, our, our local uh, superstar, Olympian, um, uh, Ali, Ali. Isn't this uh, something? Yes. What um, happened at the uh, ESPY Awards? So the ESPY Awards um, honor, usually at the ESPY Awards, they honor some you know great personal heroic kind of triumph. And this year they did uh, honored 141 of the survivors of uh, Larry Nasser's abuse, sexual abuse. And they uh, came together to accept the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, which, as we know, took quite a bit of courage for them. 
Um, but Allie Reisman is in the front. I mean, she is really... Talk about women's leadership. She's stepped up to say yeah. so many things. And, you know, they call them her sister survivors. Um, they had the woman who was the first to be abused mm. even yeah. you know, long before Allie saying, this represents hundreds more people who are not here tonight. I mean, there just was some powerful moments on the stage with all of them up there. And our local gal made good is there to talk about it. I love this part. We have part some sound. She, Can we yeah, just play yeah, a little please, sound? Yes. Here yeah. she is yeah. uh, on the stage with mm. these 140 women addressing other survivors of abuse. Here's Ellie Reisman. Too often, abusers and enablers perpetuate suffering by making survivors feel that their truth doesn't matter. To all the survivors out there, don't let anyone rewrite your story. Your truth does matter. You matter. And you are not alone. And by the way, the judge in the case, who that, so, that she's something? in the audience, she addressed her. But I mean, this she's a young woman still. She's really young. She has emerged as such a leader. It is really pretty beautiful. And then let me say something. When there are uh, issues like this that are difficult to talk about, harder to hear about, and these, uh, if people remember those stories as those survivors told them in the courtroom, were just terrific. Um, to have someone like her, who is sort of fresh face, f- fresh-faced American, all-around gal, um, athlete, is really important um, to make people listen and hear what that's all about. I hope everybody knows, by the way, that she's from here. I, I'm right. assuming well, everybody that's knows. What I'm yeah. right, she's a lo- <laughs> yeah. Let me just—you know—we rarely play two bites from two sound bites from the same person, but she was so great. Here again at the same ESPY Awards, she's thanking the judge who is sitting in the audience for listening to survivors when so many others mm-hmm. were turning them away. Here's mm-hmm. Riceman again. This past January, Judge Rosemarie Aquilina showed a profound level of understanding by giving us each the opportunity to face our abuser, to speak our truth and feel heard. Thank you, Judge Aquilina, for honoring our voices. You know, by the way, if people didn't see this, it's only, you can get it online, the, the, the tableau of all these young women standing on the stage. It's just, it was really, really, I didn't see it live. I saw it after. Oh, me too. And the judge who said, you know, don't, don't look down to him. Mm. You look up and you, Mm. you face them. You listen to it. You know, I, I, uh, yeah, this is really something. So local girl makes good and stands out in front of a very important issue and keeps talking about it and finds other forums, uh, by, through which to talk about it. And I'm, I'm, this is, Talk about being proud. That's just really quite something. It was terrific. Yeah, yeah. Well, now we got a, a, a story about a local woman who's in considerable hot water, although she has apologized. She's a Harvard researcher. Her name is Teresa Lund, director of the um, something called the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. And she got into a fight with a neighbor uh, with a biracial daughter asking if the child, if the child and the mother lived in quote-unquote affordable unit, uh, units there and the kid was supposedly making noise outside in a, about 3.30 on a Saturday afternoon. We have a little sound from this too, so we'll play this sound. You'll hear the, the voice of the two uh, mothers here. Are you in one of the affordable units or are you in one of the Harvard units? Mind your business. I live here. This is my business. Okay, this is good. my home. Okay, so sit with me. But it's none of your business where I live, what actually, my name is. No, actually, actually it really isn't. Disturbing the whole actually, it really isn't. No, because you're the only one down here right now. There's nobody else out here saying that we, you know, are starting, starting trouble. So I'm not saying you're I'm asking you nicely. Okay, but I'm not going anywhere, ma'am. I live here. 
My kid is not doing anything wrong. Why should I leave? So uh, Ms. Lund was saying that this child was making too much noise while there were other ch her kids, I guess, were trying to sleep in the afternoon. became a huge news story. We talked about this with Emily Rooney a little while ago that went video, the, the, mm -hmm. viral, the video went viral, rather, and Emily was questioning whether this should have become a big news story. So what do you, what's your take on this whole thing? Whether it should be a news story? Of course it is. Um, she was raising the <laughs> issue, but yeah, she wasn't right. challenging yeah. the notion. Yeah. Um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's, it's, it's now part of this unfortunate pattern of folks just questioning people of color in their spaces, in their normal spaces. So that's part of the pattern, unfortunately. The other part of this that really is troublesome to me, there's so much to be troubled by, this woman works for the Humanitarian Initiative at Harvard. This, they're dealing with, you know, really hard cases, stories, trying to do some, you know, uplifting work. And I'm thinking, don't, what, really? You, you, what are you talking about? You don't have any of this in your own space and time? Don't you even hear yourself? I mean, what, what is that? I just don't get it. So it, to be specific, it conducts research on the practice of relieving human suffering in war, among other missions. I, I, I find that particularly egregious and um, annoying. You know, we don't know what's happened to the woman because uh, while her profile has been taken down uh, from the website of the Humanitarian Initiative, but yeah, I She's, read, on, she leave. Has I read She's on leave, I'm told. Oh, she yeah. is? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. She, I know mm -hmm. she apologized. Mm -hmm. it, 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 a couple of things. I read probably 200 of the comments on the Globe story, mm -hmm. and so many people missed the point. So many people were saying, well, maybe her kid was screaming, and, and let's assume for argument's sake that Ms. Lund was right, that the mm. kid was creating a disturbance. There's a way to say it to a neighbor, and there's a way not to say it. The opening line in this mocking tone, are you in one of the affordable yeah, units, are you in one of the Harvard units, is so demeaning. And, and, what, and what does that mean anyway? And what does, so, so the question to her is, what difference does that make? You she know. was just trying to demean her in uh, any way she possibly yeah. could. And so, you know, I, I, again, I, I am not a one-strike-and-you're-out kind of person, but the reason it's newsworthy, I'm not going to be on Beat the Press yeah. tonight. You are. Mm -hmm. if well, it was she's just not. A, she's got the night off. Yeah. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but uh, it's because of where this woman works. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not just a neighbor. It's a neighbor who, as you say, whose job is to care as it says, you just read, uh, to deal with human suffering, do right. research and education. So, I, again, I don't know what the ultimate penalty should be. It's good she made an apology, but it is really unbelievable. And let's that not forget like that she addressed this. the child, too. Yes, she which did. Which I think is beyond the She did. The pale. I forgot about that. I'm so um, glad you said that. About her mother. She re referenced her mother. She referenced the mother to the child, which... If uh, so I, right. I'm really I'm really impressed that the mother at that point didn't, you know, lose it and go completely yeah. crazy with her because that's so inappropriate. Um, I, I don't even know what to say. Uh, so mm -hmm. l let's move on to something. Um, you know, I, w w let me preface this by saying we seem to be so f backward in our thinking mm -hmm. about drug addiction mm -hmm. in the United States and drug treatment in, in the United States. Uh, and I mention this because. Uh, there's this proposal to have a facility here in Massachusetts where people with addictions can eject illicit drugs over supervision, which I know gets a little some people's haunches up. But a lot of people that are experts in this field say this is a good thing Excellent. because it prevents deaths, it prevents uh, overdoses, and all this kind of stuff. So and this also involves the governor. The U.S. attorney, uh, Andrew Lelling, um, 
says that such a facility would violate federal laws and, and there could be criminal charges. But anyway, where are you on these safe injections? I'm sites? right where you are. I have, um, um, in my role over many years and just most recently in the, le in the past year, I do a lot of uh, journalism judging of contests. And I've seen any number of very, very serious, well done documentaries uh, taking place in the heartland and, and every, in every geographic space in America with regard to the opioid epidemic, those who are suffering from it, and how hard it is to get off. I mean, I think I was one of the people that thought at the beginning, well, if you get some really good counselors, you know, yeah, sure, you know, put some effort into it, you can turn it around. Let me tell you, people, this, is, this stuff is bad. It, people with the most, most um, intense intention um, with all the effort that they put in, try, oh, try, yeah. try to do everything. They need so much support. And even after all of that, it can fall apart at the end. It is really tough to get off. So when you start talking about uh, doing something like this where they can have the advantage of being near people who are providing treatment, and by the way, preventing you know, overdoses right there, um, there is no question in the other countries of the world that this is working. Now, is it the only solution? As we saw in this article, as one of the experts said, no, it can't be the only solution, but it sure should be a piece of one. And I think that we can't afford at this point with this thing getting worse and worse and worse, it's not getting any better, and the people who are on it, it's so tough for them to get off. Let's be a little open to what could possibly well, work. Especially since you know. if you were opposing it, what's implicit in your opposition is that by creating this zone, you're going to cause someone to do something that they would not otherwise do, right. which is obviously a false premise. Right. They're going to do it. They're just going to do it in a dangerous fashion. And there's a wonderful editorial for people on the fence about this. Uh, uh, there's an editorial in The Globe called Mr. Data, which I guess is a mocking way to refer to the governor. Mr. Data goes missing on safe injection plant, and they, they quote Governor Baker, who has a problem with this, mm -hmm. and they, based on fact, debunk the, con the evidence, and I use that in quotes, that the governor has cited right. to suggest that this is not working. It's leading to an increase in addiction. And if you read this Globe editorial, they make a pretty compelling case that, in fact, virtually everywhere this is being tried, it's, uh, it is creating a, 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 an environment which there are fewer deaths and it has been very helpful to those who are suffering from addiction. So people should read the editorial. Well, you know, well, I, I, yeah, I would also add this. I was just on that non-vacation I just had. Yeah, I, was with, it, yeah. I was with someone who works in this field and who has a very tiny piece of this uh, in New York City where they are also having yeah. some discussions about this. And he just told me story after story. He said, now listen, you know, this is not going to turn overnight. But we can see we who are in the field dealing with all the people that nobody else wants to deal with, you know, that this is can have an impact when they're there with you. This is the same argument he pointed out to me that was needles. made against clean needles. Clean needles, needles. Yeah, exactly absolutely. Right. Yeah. For people who are getting point. AIDS right. and dying. Right. And, the, and you said, well, let's give people clean needles so they That's don't right. infect each other. With their, oh, we can't do that. We can't right. do that. I mean, it was the most ridiculous things. Remember the guys would be out in the con on the on the uh, on the intersections collecting money for yeah. needle exchange because yeah. the government was so ridiculous about it. And by the way, Jim O'Connell, healthcare for the homeless, longtime physician down he there, he's talked about uh, how you could come into that center there, uh, right there on the so-called methadone mile, which we shouldn't call the methadone recovery mile. Recovery row is what the mayor recovery calls Recovery row. Yes. But if you drive by there, um, you see such sad situations. Yeah. People that are really out of it, you know, kind of staggering around mm -hmm. the sidewalk and stuff. Ha 
bring, bring people into that, his healthcare for the homeless center there, which is a beautiful place. Let him do it there with nurses and doctors and everything else. We're talking to Kelly Crossley. Kelly, we're going to end with two upbeat stories because mm. I can't yes, stand I the know, depression. Me too. I, can't I love this story out of Bend, Oregon. Me and too. I've never heard of Bend, Oregon until the last <laughs> couple of days. You've it. all probably heard about it, unless <laughs> you may not know. It is the one remaining place in North America that has what? A blockbuster. Exactly. A blockbuster, <laughs> blockbuster store. store. There used yeah. to be 9,000 in North something? America. As recently as I think 2004 or six yeah. or something, two just closed in Alaska despite John Oliver's campaign to try to keep it alive. <laughs> yeah. You see John Oliver sent like the jock strap that Russell Crowe <laughs> wore in some movie in an so attempt John to get Oliver. people there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. essentially, they, and Ben Dargan's the last one on the planet. I know. And I just would like to point out that the blockbuster as a, as a cultural phenomenon is in so many movies. If anybody's seen The Holiday with yeah. Kate Winslet, yes. that scene with Jack mm-hmm. Black is in a Jack Black is in a uh, a uh, blockbuster yeah. when he does all of the all of the uh, the movie scores. Yeah, think it's so how funny. Much time we've all spent. I know. Over the years. And it was, as they say now, it continues to be in Bend, Oregon, a communal gathering place. And it was very much, you know, for lots of folks for many, many years before people sort of went solo on their phone and on the street. Right. For even, you know, they said in Alaska, one of the reasons they thought it might stay open is because the Internet service is both expensive and sketchy. That's not the case in Bend, Oregon. But a lot of people who have uh, uh, high speed Internet and don't need a blockbuster, go because it's this nostalgic, right. wonderful part of the community, which is why I love the story. I do too. I think it's great. Okay, I know what your other upbeat story is. It's a food truck. <laughs> I, I love food yeah, trucks. I love food, food truck. trucks too. But it's going to be, the, they want, uh, Test Kitchen wants taste testers. Is that what they're doing with this food truck? Well, no, it looks like they're, they're you know, just for the people. They may be tasting for themselves, but this is America's Test Kitchen, and they're going to open from 1130 to 2 on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays out at the seaport, and they're going to pick one one dish that they've just talked about in the show from that week and then feature it. So the first week was pork. Daggone it, I'm sorry I missed that one. <laughs> Philadelphia pork sandwich <laughs> from the current issue of Cook's uh, Country. They may also have special events with book signings and demos. All of that, I love, you know, I love a food truck. I'm with you on that. Well, you know what I also love? Mm-hmm. The two other things I love about this story. One, I love the single dish thing. Yes. I used to live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I told you this story, and there's a restaurant, the name of which I forget, that was on 72nd right off Broadway that I would go to quite frequently that only have one entree a day. And See? you could call yeah. or go online, find out what it was. And obviously, it didn't appeal to a lot of people. Right. But the simplicity of it and the well, something, I, like that. I just love that. And you know what it also reminded me of? What? Because this is what they're do- America's mm-hmm. Test Kitchen is doing on TV. How much did you love those low-rent stores as seen on TV and all the oh movies? My yeah. God. Oh, yeah. So you'd be up at 2 o'clock in yes. the morning. You'd yes, see yes. a Floby. Yeah. And, and you'd be able to go buy it at your local. And that's essentially a variation oh, on this is the great. theme here. And because they, you know, they do such a wide variety with any one food product, that means they can have one food product but do it so many different ways. So, you, as they say, you can have a sandwich. You can have a bowl. You can have a salad. That's you can great. have a soup with just one issue. By the way, I love restaurants, too. I don't want anybody to get confused. So, yeah, I love food trucks and restaurants. So, Kelly, what's on Under the Radar <laughs> Sunday night, 6 o'clock, WGBH? We got two, two stories that people really need to pay attention to. It's really confusing, I know, that question number one, uh, which would legally limit the number of nurses mm. per patient. We have two nurses, both named Donna, on opposite sides of the oh, oh, question. <laughs> oh, oh, no, good. we have Donna for and Donna against. And... Um, they're representing uh, the the opposite, uh, the opposing organizations, and they have real good, um, strong 
conversation for their side, and people should hear it before they go in, because it's a little bit more complex it than it seems. It is more complex than it question. seems. Yeah, yeah. I don't um, know what to make of that yes. question. So I think it's great you're doing that. Yes, yeah, so that's one. And then the second part is there are days to go before the end of the legislative session, and Emily Stein has been out front trying to get people to, uh, the lawmakers to push through this hands-free um, bill for cell phones. Um, and so she's uh, come on to talk to me about these last few days and pushing and what it means. But most importantly, I also have with me Allison Lowell, who is the mother of Gabriella Lowell, who was just killed a month ago by a guy glancing down at his cell phone. Oh. That's a you month know, ago I, in Worcester. Can we Worcester. spend a minute on this? Yeah. Yeah. I had uh, uh, Anna and Rich Levitan on yes. the other night who were yeah. amongst those leading yeah. the charge. Their daughter, who went, I think, to Milton Academy, yes. was killed in the South. I can't remember what state yeah. exactly five years ago. They're amongst the yeah. people with your guests who are leading this thing. If there was ever a, a no-brainer kind of thing, while it is true that some people say it's the talking that is distracting, not holding of the phone, there's no, the texting. There's no harm. And the problem, for those who don't understand this, the texting laws, and everybody agrees how dangerous texting is while driving, cannot be enforced, even though there's a law, right. because the cop doesn't know if you're texting, which is illegal, right. or talking, which is currently legal. So the reason they want hands-free is so that police officers have the ability to stop really dangerous behavior. Right. And so, uh, again, the clock is counting down. I'm glad you're doing this. I was yeah. thrilled to do it the other night. Well, anybody who go, will listen to Allison Lowell, just who just is burying her daughter, can think another thing about it because it's pretty intense. And call your legislator because the yeah. clock is really winding down right. on this hands-free right. thing. Callie, thank you very much. Thank Good you. Callie, Callie is care. host of Under right. the Radar with Callie Crossy, which you can catch Sunday nights right here on 89.7 at 6 o'clock. And you can subscribe to her at Under the Radar, uh, uh, her podcast rather, Under the Radar podcast on iTunes. Follow her on Twitter at Callie Crossley. Coming up, Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young here to talk about greenwashing, how being good to the environment could be bad for housekeeping jobs. A conversation next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy, and she is Mardrigan. We're broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library on a beautiful day. Joining us to go over the latest business headlines is Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young. Shirley is also a GBH contributor. Hi there, Shirley. Hi. Happy summer. It's and so beautiful. Yes, it is. It's great gorgeous. Yeah, it is gorgeous out. Day. So, Shirley Young, we talked about this before with listeners, it, with traffic getting so terrible uh, in, in and around Boston. The idea for some kind of congestion tolling, uh, making people pay more uh, for rush hour, driving at rush hour, or making them pay less, as the legislature is thinking about, uh, if they don't do that. W where are you on all this? You know, I, I don't understand. Just leave it to Bostonians, or leave it to us to be like, uh, to, to, to for this pilot, this is this is a pilot program. It's not even permanent, right? That's exactly what we said. And, uh, exactly. I mean, we... Everybody agrees traffic is horrific in mm -hmm. Boston, and horrific. we have to do something. And we're not going to build more roads, right? And so this seems a very reasonable uh, program. You know, a pilot, uh, you know, we're not raising the, the toll prices. We're offering discounts. Uh, I was just on the phone with Chris Dempsey, uh, transportation, transportation for Massachusetts. Mass, yeah. I think you should run for office. <laughs> I heard that, okay, too. Fine. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, and... Um, 
And uh, he was telling me, listen, drivers have to opt into this program. And so, uh, so it's not like, it, it, not everybody has to be subject, subjected to it. And so, and he was t- rattling off some statistics that was like, wow, this is a real no-brainer. I mean, he was saying that um, for every, you know, for 5% of the drivers to get off the road, right, it, it reduces congestion by like 20%. Imagine what it's like if every day was like a Friday morning, you know, commute, you know, Friday commute, where it, it can be a, a, a bit lighter because maybe some people have taken the day off. Well, you know, um, but, but Baker's response on WAF uh, yesterday or the day before was, you know, it's punitive and I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. And Dempsey's response, and I am totally with Dempsey, even if it makes a small difference, as you say, try it. And for those yeah. who weren't listening when we talked to listeners about I want to play this again. Governor Dukakis was with us, I can't remember, yesterday or the day before. And he talked about the study about traffic patterns and congestion that Barry Bluestone, I'm sure you know about it, had done uh, uh, about 93, the Southeast Expressway. Here's a little back and forth with uh, Governor Dukakis and Marjorie. Average speed on the Southeast Expressway at 5 o'clock in the afternoon is now... Marjorie? One mile an hour? <laughs> 10.6 miles an hour. Oh, According to Bluestone, in three years it will be six miles an hour, and in three oh, more years it's going to be three miles an hour. Now, Charlie must understand this. I mean, he drives around a lot more than I do. Well, you talked about taking two hours to drive from Salem to Boston. Yes, indeed. So, I'm, I mean, has anyone spoken? Have you spoken to Baker? I know that I haven't. Did, I, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I can't tell much of this is political posturing. Um, you know, he's the uh, you know no no new taxes, no new fees, and so. But I, this wouldn't be new. It isn't know, the London model where you charge more at peak hour. It's the I, I model know. where you charge less at non-peak hours. I mean, I feel like he gave he, perhaps he gave some uh, po- politically uh, you know p- appealing response, but um, but uh, this is a pilot. Uh, a lot of other regions do this already. Um, and, and we have to do something about the traffic. And and we, we just have to, all we want to, all I think the advocates want to do is test the idea. Right. Uh, for all we know, it doesn't work here, but we should test it. Uh, and and um, we don't have it. I don't think we have a backup plan to reduce traffic. Right? I think you've got to go on one of your relentless crusades that you're famous for, Shirley, and write about this. I was well, thinking about that today. Uh, oh, you know, I'm so glad to hear that, actually. <laughs> I mentioned this before, but you weren't here, obviously. You know, one of the things that the governor was worried about was that this was going to be like punishing people, low-income people who don't have any flexibility in their jobs. But one of these stories pointed out that one of the things this will do is get more... Uh, make it easier for buses to actually get somewhere in the yes. morning, and it's often low-income people to take mm-hmm. buses. Yes. So it does seem there might be a balancing a little bit there. I mean, this is again, it, f- it feels like you know Boston doesn't, you know how I'm always railing on Bostonians. We don't want to try anything new yeah, or different. And, I know and this is exactly uh, that falls into that category. We're talking <laughs> to Shirley Young. Speaking of transportation, you wrote a multi-issue piece about the seaport today, and I wanted to, the thing that excited me most is how close Martin Richard Park is to opening. We'll get to that in a minute. But speaking of transportation, where are we on the ferry front? And ter- talk, talk about congestion in the, in the seaport. seaport. Where are we? Right. So and I, re- I wrote a column a couple months ago about how, uh, you know, five fixes to uh, help seaport district traffic. And the one thing I didn't write about was water transportation. And that do- has come up a lot. Uh, there have been two groups that have been really leading the charge in the last uh, couple years on this. Um, 
Boston Harbor Now, which is a water uh, waterfront advocacy group. That was the, the nonprofit that combined mm -hmm. from the Harbor Alliance mm -hmm. and uh, islands and and another uh, waterfront, um, I guess Boston Harbor Association, and then um, and then uh, also convention the, center. Yeah, the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority are also leading the charge on this. And the the convention center authority is much closer. Uh, they have uh, come up with a a plan to uh, to, t to do a one year pilot from Lovejoy Wharf, Wharf, which is in North Station, and that would be a four 14-minute trip to um, Fan Pier in the Seaport mm -hmm. District. Um, they would operate it somewhat like a, a, the shuttle, uh, the employer shuttle that's uh, being operated in the Seaport District. That's a bus shuttle. Mm -hmm. um, so employees, uh, so what happens is that companies fund this bus shuttle. So companies would fund this commuter boat and employees would get on it for free. Um, uh, and, uh, well, I guess it's not <laughs> Anyways, they wouldn't have to pay right. fares. But because um, this boat is using uh, a public dock and, and public and private money are being, is being used to fund this dock and pay for this dock, um, the boat will have to, everybody agreed the boat should be public too. There mm -hmm. should be, the general public should be able to board on it. So, uh, you know, I think the priority boarding will go to the employees and then the general public, you know, if there are remaining seats left, or th I think there'll be some seats set aside for the general public. How imminent is this thing it is supposed so what so the wharf is done but they need to rebuild the dock and um, that could be done in November or December and right now the authority is uh, going through the process of figuring out how many boats do do we need what is the size of the boats I mean they've been looking at this for some time now so uh, it really depends on this uh, I mean it could be the end of the year early next year I mean very soon and it'd be a one-year pilot and I think it's great don't you think it would be change your whole attitude, especially in the nighttime, to leave your office, get in a boat, go across the harbor? Well, we've had to ferries your car. off and on. Yeah, there here are for a bunch of ferries but in the harbor. But, but yeah. we don't have that. I mean, this, this idea, what, what was going to uh, the North Station to Fan Pier? Right, I mean, these of? are two areas where there are lots of, lots of workers and commuters, yeah. and you really can't get there from North Station so to the I. Seaport District. There really is no easy way except. By water, so I think this is really exciting. Can you drink on the way home? That's I'm serious. <laughs> well, okay, okay. It's funny that, that you mentioned they have that bars because and all these boats. Usually, but love, don't they? I don't know if you can drink. Well, it's only 14 minutes. I guess yeah. oh. that's enough. But you know, <laughs> funny, funny you mentioned that because you probably know these these uh, know these um, know the guys. I should maybe I assume it's guys behind Night Shift Brewery. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I think right? we've, yes. We've had well, them. they're opening a restaurant or a, a tap room right at Lovejoy Wharf. There you go. So you could. Grab a beer at, at the Lovejoy Wharf and then hop on the ferry to the Seaport District. We're talking <laughs> to Shirley Young from the Boston. Jim Road. also mentioned the uh, Martin's Park. That's of course in memory of Martin Richard, the eight-year-old who was killed in the Boston Marathon bombing. This sounds like it's going to be a gorgeous. Uh, spot down there. Tell us about it. Yeah, so this park broke ground a year ago, last August, and if you were ever, uh, you know, I'm, I have, my kids are little, so I am by the Children's Museum. This park is uh, right by the Children's Museum, and it's just this massive construction zone, and, and it doesn't even look anywhere near being done, but when I checked in with the city of Boston, which is building this park, they said, I think we're going to be done in November. That's why I was shocked, because <laughs> I've seen the construction. Right. When I read your piece, I was I stunned. think in the next, right now they've done all the underground work they've done some of the building of the garage and, and but they said in the next month they'll, they'll start to put the playground equipment in you'll they'll start to put the trees in so then it will really start to look like a park and 
uh, it's really exciting. And what's also really exciting, because you know I like to write about fundraising. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so this is a $15 million park. Uh, almost uh, much of it has been privately, you know, private donations. Um, and last I wrote about, this was probably like a year ago and change, uh, about $3 million short. Um, now the gap is three hundred thousand yeah. dollars. So people really uh, stepped up. So this will be very, you know, with last more one last fundraising push. I think um, th it will be fully funded, and the funding includes the fifteen million includes a five million maintenance fund. So uh, the city won't really have to worry about maintaining. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure they'll probably spend some money, but um, it, the, the maintenance fund will be um, is, is spoken for right now. We're talking to Shirley Young from the Boston Globe. You had a great piece saying this hard law. Lawsuit that, that seemed to be about uh, Asian Americans and discrimination against Asian Americans, whether they had good enough personalities. I mean, really. <laughs> but you're, the, the headline in your piece is Harvard lawsuit is really about affirmative action, not Asian Americans. So uh, explain that. Um, so this was one of the my the hardest pieces for me to write because I'm Asian American, and as I wrote in my story, it, it's it's. Um, you know, it's, it's almost treated like a fact of life that it's really hard for Asian Americans to get into an Ivy League school. It's, it, it's harder for us. We, we imply, um, apply in such big numbers that, uh, you know, we feel like we're pitted against each other. And in part, this uh, Harvard, um, this suit uh, filed against Harvard alleges discrimination against Asian Americans. And... Um, you know, and, and if you dig a little deeper, the suit is not being filed by Asian Americans. Other suits have been filed by Asian Americans alleging discriminations in college admissions, but this one is is um, filed uh, by a white guy, white conservative Blum, Ed Blum, right? Blum. Yeah. and um, and he had he had, had taken um, he had been involved in a University of mm. Texas case, yeah. Austin, and, and on behalf of a white student who uh, went to the Supreme Court and he lost, and so a lot of people think, well, now he's going to try. Uh, try this again with Asian Americans. And the reason why this was a really tough story for me to raise, because I feel, I, I know Asian Americans, everybody can relate, Asian Americans relate to the discrimination, right? But, um, but, but at the same time, if affirmative action, I mean, the remedy that Blum is seeking is that to, the schools have to stop using race and basically getting rid of affirmative action. And, um, and that, that, that could hurt Asian Americans um, as well, getting rid of um, affirmative action. And so I'm, I think that could hurt some, some segment of the Asian American yeah. population. And so I, it was a really hard story for me to write. I mean, I, I came down on the, I don't know if Harvard against, discriminates against Asian Americans. Um, I'll leave, the, you know, if you look at the filings, uh, there was a, um, they're, they're dueling experts. Uh, the plaintiff said, you know, aha, you know, discriminate clearly discriminates against Asian Americans and then Harvard's expert says no, no, no and they're both looking at the same set of data but they just sliced it differently. Well, you can also add, to add a little modifier to your story too, the whole thing may be moot uh, in Blum's favor if affirmative action is his target because as we know, the fifth vote in five to four decisions about allowing affirmative action in some fashion to stay alive in higher ed was Anthony Kennedy and the conventional wisdom is Brett Kavanaugh does not share his sensibilities yeah. on this issue, so the likelihood is good that... It's, it's good that he's going to win, yeah, right? And yeah. that affirmative action could be struck down. Um, it, was, it, it was... As it was, a factor, not as, the fa as, right, as, even a, as a factor. A factor. And, um, and, and, I, and I, I'm clear on one thing, which is that I think we need affirmative action. I mean, 
I'd be the first to say we don't need it if, if we were a race-blind society, but we're not. We're not. Um, and we need to be intentional if we want to create diverse schools, uh, diverse workplaces. And so, um, you know, and, and you can tell that, you know, both sides, uh, you know, not just Harvard and Blum side, but you could tell that the various, all these groups are kind of lining up for mm-hmm. this big fight and preparing to go to the Supreme Court. You know, a lot of people of, talk sorry. about economic diversity now, yes. too, which is a big deal, especially at like a place like Princeton where you went. You don't want everybody there right. to you know, arrive in a Jaguar. You know? Well, this is what Blum calls for. He says, don't use race, use um, socioeconomic. Uh, factors well, there's a place for that. You don't have to do one or the other. It right, can that's be what he wants. Both and. Yeah, that's, you know? that's what you he know, wants. Speaking of intentional, using your word a minute ago, Jim Rooney, since he's taken over the uh, Boston Chamber, has mm-hmm. been pretty intentional on the whole issue of using the chamber as a vehicle to get more people of color, businesses led by and people younger. of color, and younger people of color. Uh, uh, into the business infrastructure here. Describe what the latest thing the Boston Chamber's done, which sounds pretty exciting to me. Yeah, I have to it does. Say. It does. It's called. Um, it's uh, wait, what's the full name? It's the fun. It's fun. It stands I'll for fun. I'll find a second while you're yeah, talking. Fierce yeah. urgency of now. Oh, yeah. fierce, fierce urgency, urgency of, now. of now. Stealing the <laughs> very king clever. line. Obviously. Yeah, king line, and uh, it's, it'll be a, like a five-day festival in September. It, it's it's um, you know aimed at millennials of color. Um, it sounds really exciting because. You know, one of the biggest complaints is, you know, as someone of color and I go to these business events, I'm not a millennial, I'm not that young, but (laughs) but when I go, (laughs) but when I go to these business events, I mean, it's largely white and it's largely male. And I mean, now you start to see more women, um, but, but. You know, we need to see more people of color. I mean, I tend to see. I don't know if you guys have been to Get Connected. That's no. Colette Phillips. So when yeah. you um, and she's um, the uh, legendary Colette. Phillips, legendary. So say. when you go to her events, the Get Connect event, it's it's all people of color. I mean, you walk in, and you can't believe this is Boston. You have 300 uh, minority professionals networking. And what I love about this is that uh, they're geared at millennials, um, uh, a younger people of color, uh, younger people of color, and and these are the people who are most likely to leave. You know who are most likely to to uh, you know get recruited elsewhere and leave Boston. Well, leave so or not come because you know the ones that the, of the two there are two statistics that stay in my mind from the Globe series on the history of and current state of racism. One is that incredible dat- piece of data about the average wealth of a white family is two hundred fifty grand. The average wealth of a black family is eight dollars assets. Yeah. The other thing is the stu- is the polling that was done about how people of color around the country, how they rate, I think it was eight major cities in terms of being welcoming or unwelcoming. We were number one by a lot in terms of unwelcoming. This is the kind of thing, it seems to me, that responds to that. Even if you're not from here, you're a young kid and you're of color and you're a professional, will you not come here? Well, this, I would hope, would make it more likely to at least consider the place, Yeah, no, I think it's great, and it's great that the Chamber's doing it. And, um, you know, Jim Rooney, he used to run the the Convention Center Authority before, and when he ran the um, authority there, he made a point to recruit minority conventions to town because, again, he wanted to bring, uh, you know, black engineers, black professionals to Boston to see that we can be welcoming. 
um, to, to all people. Shirley Young, I want to ask you uh, this story about Massachusetts becoming the Silicon Valley for age tech because uh, a lot of people are getting older around here. I found this it's so a lot exciting. Of people. Yeah. Well, there's no alternative. Well, that's right. Marjorie. I'm getting older. Yeah. I'm getting older. So here's what I want to know. I want to know about getting my virtual reality goggles that will enable me to visit the African Serengeti from my living room. I, know. I mean, they're doing a lot of research on neat stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, this is, this is a piece by my colleague Rob Weissman who covers uh, retirement. I think we had a we had a fun um, name for his be beat. I think. Q3 or something Q3. like the, the third quarter oh, of life. Well, that's <laughs> actually pretty great. Yeah, and, or maybe uh, three plus. <laughs> but this but is called age tech. Is it's what age yeah. tech, and I never heard of it. And, then I was, I. and, and I think, uh, I don't know if it was uh, Governor Baker that coined it, but it was trying to make us the Silicon Valley of age yeah. tech. And if you think about it, we're the perfect place for that to happen. I mean, we already have a, a fairly older population, you know, older labor pool, and so we have a lot of old people. We have yep. a lot of, uh, you know, cons older consumers with disposable income, right, who can access these uh, virtual reality goggles or the robot, right? There is a robot yes, that will robot remind that you. Yes, sits on the counter and ri reminds you to take your pills. But that's important. Yeah. By the way, I'm so, I, I want to interrupt only to say, when, you, when Marjorie teased this discussion about this exciting surrogate, and that's wonderful for right. people who can do it, the, the, the core part of this, I think, it's is more not serious. the exotic. Yeah. Right. It's right. for older people who right. need help, whether Tell it's you. remembering yeah. when to take their Listen meds or whatever. Listen to this. So I thought this is really neat uh, because one of the things about getting older is a lot of people have hearing loss. So this right. is a company uh, called Eversound sells these wireless headphones yeah. yes. that the volume lets seniors control it to varying degrees of he hearing loss. So you could be, if your wife is totally deaf or almost deaf yeah. and you just have a little hearing loss, I think that's what it means. Yeah. They can control it so you can sit together and watch the movie. Yeah, no, I thought it was brilliant. I was like, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But, that but, that's, but if you think about it, the technology for that already exists. You just need to make a product that, that, you know, that, that uh, connects to you know, your TV or whatever. Uh, but, but we're the perfect place because exactly. we also have the medical industrial complex mm -hmm. behind that. We have hospitals, we have biotechs, we have life sciences, you know, and then we have the VCs uh, that will support and this, this kind of work and, and, get, and get it. And so I'm excited. I mean, it reminds me a lot of um, digital health care. Uh, that's another priority of the Baker administration and other business leaders in town to, to make you know, Boston and Cambridge and Massachusetts the, the epicenter of digital health care. And, and this is kind of an age tech is really kind of a, 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 an extension of that concept. I think it's really neat. I'll be needing it all soon. I don't know if you know, but a lot of people I Clinging know, Marjorie, to a slippery pole. a lot of people I know are getting older. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it really is. In fact, virtually, let me just think. I'm well, virtually, yeah, most of yeah. them are getting older. Yeah. Is that your experience as a reporter? Yes, yes. yes. But the thing, is, but the yes. thing, okay, the thing about the what virtual reality that's so exciting is these are people that are pretty much housebound because of their yes. illnesses. So it just is opening up this huge yeah. world to you. I think the woman that we, we showed a picture of, she had dementia. Dementia, she dementia. did. Yes. Right. Yeah. And then I she was did. Like, that was a great story. It, yeah, she says that she, exactly, and she could use this virtual reality to take a trip to her childhood hometown in Sweden. Sweden, yeah. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, cool. Very, I very cool. I thought that cool was wonderful. Nice okay. to see you, Shirley. Thanks for having Shirley me. Shirley Young, thank you very Happy much summer for coming too. in. It's always a very, yeah, it's a beautiful day out, isn't it, Shirley? Shirley, stay on that transportation stuff. We need a, we need a big push there. Why don't you stay on the transportation stuff? Because she has a huge influence here <laughs> among movers and shakers. As opposed to you, you That's right. Shirley Young joins us every Thanks, week. Shirley. She's Boston Globe's business columnist and a WGBH contributor. Up.
Coming up, it is our Friday news quiz with the folks behind the upcoming crossword tournament. We're going to hear all about that up next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Marjorigan live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. We're plunging into the valves of society by way of today's news quiz featuring two guys behind Boss Words, this year's crossword puzzle tournament, which happens next Sunday, July 29th, at the Roxbury Latin School. We're joined by John Lieb. John is one of the hosts of Boss Words. He also teaches math and coaches football and baseball at Roxbury Latin. You're a busy guy there, John. Yep. Good to see you. And uh, June Park, he's a full-time dad puzzle maker. He runs a subscription variety puzzle service outside the box puzzles. June, it's great to meet you, too. Hello. Hello to you. And by the way, we should say we have lifelines, gentlemen. Great. When you were asked questions, if you're having problems, if you're in a state of self-doubt, you ask for a lifeline, and either Helen or Andy will help you. Hi, Helen. How are you? Bye. Where are you from? Um, Milton, Mass. Milton, Mass. And Andy, where are you from? Milton. Are you two together? We are. Well, I guess it's good you're from the same place then. That's excellent. <laughs> we'll get to you two in a minute. Thanks for helping. the other way, too. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for helping us out. First of all, Roxbury Latin. Remember we went to visit Roxbury Latin? Uh, that is a little piece I of remember. heaven there. Yes. It's, a great, it's a great school out there. A little there. piece of heaven. That's great. <laughs> it is. So, it's, June, let's start with you. What is the Crossword Puzzle Tournament? Well, it is an occasion for crossword solvers. And crossword solving is mostly an individual activity, something you know people would typically do on the tea or at their kitchen table while they're having their coffee or whatever. But the, I guess the, the advent of the internet has made people realize that there's a, actually kind of a puzzle-solving community. And it's pretty fun to get together with sort of like-minded uh, people with very diverse interests that are all interested in words and wordplay and have a day or a weekend of puzzle-solving together. So is it kind of like bingo? You sit there at the table <laughs> together? And yeah, there's yeah. an umbrella of tables. You sit there, uh, the clock starts, yeah. and uh, you individually dig into your puzzle and do it as quickly as you can, correctly, uh -huh. ideally. And uh, there's usually a number of puzzles. There'll be five puzzles at our tournament that everybody does, a varying difficulty level. Uh, some people do puzzles remarkably fast. You would be amazed how quickly some people can get through a puzzle, and but we have solvers of all ability will be there. It's not necessarily that's the, the part, best. I want to say that, that's the part the I love the most. Because you're good at crosswords. Well, I'm not good. I'm a mid-level. I'm not like you guys. I'm a mid-level guy, but I'm, my dream in life, which I've never accomplished, which is hard. I've been trying to do the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle for 30 years to finish it. I've never finished it once. I've come within one box, but I've never finished it. But you have, I think they're called Red Sox, if they're the yeah, top notch. Our, our like categories this year are Red Paul Sox. Sox Yes. which is people like me, good exactly. but not great. And then you can do pairs, which I love. Explain how that works. Yes, you can sign up to solve with somebody, and you both sit there with a puzzle, um, and you fill out one copy together and see what you can do. So some people do like the social aspect of that, of coming with a friend or a spouse. And now, you guys it. may be at the top of the line in terms of the puzzle world. I want you to know you were about 10 feet away from a woman whose name was the answer to a clue right. in the Wall Street I, Journal crossword puzzle. achievement, although Marjorie I had nothing to do Iga. with it myself. Yeah, it that was, was very exciting. The great things. Yeah, you guys, exciting. you make puzzles too, I right, do, June? yes. A, we both do. I would assume, and I hope this is not true, that the advent of uh, the Internet would put people like you out of business. Has it not? 
It has been actually quite the opposite. Why? Uh, well, my business model wouldn't work without the internet. So I have a subscription service, and I have a few hundred solvers that are signed up. And you know, once a week, they get a, a, a new puzzle in their inbox over the email. Or e email, and you know, without the internet, I couldn't. Well, I get the New York Times puzzle every. I mean, now I'm going to subscribe right. to your thing too. But I mean, in terms of the creation, I assume there's software that could do things faster, maybe not better, but faster than you, isn't there, or is there? Well. For standard American-style crossword puzzles that, of the kind that you would see in a newspaper, there are uh, sort of computer-made puzzles that are very easy to make and noticeably worse in quality are than, they? than, than the ones hear. at major outlets like the New York Times or the LA Times. Or and, and John, you make crosswords too, right? Yes. So, so what makes you rise in the crossword <laughs> construction business? I mean... So anybody can submit puzzles to yeah. the various places, New York Times or yeah. Wall Street Journal, and a lot of failure at the beginning and rejections. And when you uh, your first puzzles, when you look back at what they were, you cringe. Uh, so you learn a lot from feedback you get. And uh, as Jim was saying about the internet, I think coming up with a theme for a puzzle. A lot of puzzles, most puzzles have a theme to them, and that's something that uh, the creative part of that that a computer yeah. can't really. Do so. I think when you're trying to come up with a theme to hook a, a editor and to make it fun for solvers, that's where the creativity comes in. Well, that's the Sunday crossword puzzle has a, has that theme, so and then hard. What, and once you figure out the theme, my mother used to do it like in an hour. The whole thing. Yeah, she was really good at it. Oh. That you figure out the theme, and then that's once you nice got the yeah. theme, then you can. Go, I'm sorry, I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. You're a really smart guy. Well, I can't believe I, but it's not. But it's not just brains. I mean, there's a. And you know what? I I I got dramatically better. I don't mean to plead my own case <laughs> for you two experts. I got better and better and better through the years, and then I plateaued. And it, it, how do you get through? How do you break through to that final thing, John? Is there a way, or you just keep? Doing I think it, it is practice. Uh, I'm a medium solver. I say June is one of the top solvers around. He he completes puzzles very quickly, and, and he could probably speak more to the practice it takes and what. So can you, you help me? At. Yeah. So at a most basic level, you just need to do lots of puzzles, and the more that you do the better you'll get both at kind of the overall pattern recognition, which is sort of the most important part. Yeah, you that's know, if you, it. If you see a four-letter word and the third letter is F, being able to sort of quickly go through your mm -hmm. mind and think of what the possibilities might be, even you know, independent of looking at the clue, um, that, that's an important skill. And, but then also like the kind of specialized vocabulary that tends to come up over and over in crossword puzzles because there are little words that are short little words that have lots of vowels that people sort of need to rely on in order to get all of the words interlocked the way they have to in a crossword puzzle. Before we start the quiz, can you just say, well, if people want to, I assume people can still enter this thing? Yes, they can. What's uh, the website? Bosswords, B-O-S-W-O-R-D-S dot org. Great. Uh, you can register there. We have 121 right now. That's great. And we'd love to see some more people out uh, Sunday the 29th. Great. Let's start, Marjorie. Who do you want to start with, June or John? Okay, I'll start with uh, Mr. Roxbury Lawton here, man. John, you ready? <laughs> yes. A man in Gloucester this week, and don't forget we have our lifelines if you're not, if you're not sure of yeah. the answer. A man in Gloucester this week was attacked by a seagull, but the bird was not coming for his french fries. What was it coming for? A, it stole the man's wallet dropping it on top of a building where it was recovered by a team of strangers using a cherry picker. B, it swept a man's toupee off his head and delivered it to an animal shelter where it was mistaken for a hamster and then adopted. Or C, it stole a man's crossword puzzle 
and solved it midair, <laughs> going on to become the first avian crossword champion <laughs> in the greater Northeast region. <laughs> oh, I missed my Gloucester Times this week. Uh, we're a lifeline? I think my lifeline on this one. Helen or Andy, who's the lifeline? Helen, are you in? Take it away, Helen. Read He's it. got bills in his bill. So I'm going to go with the wallets? Absolutely. Excellent. Clue. It was a that great was story. The guy's there, carrying a, a pizza box, and he has the wallet on top of the pizza box, and the seal comes right down <laughs> and steals it. And I was amazed that they could figure out where the, that's the only part I don't know about, where they could, how they could figure out where the nest was. I'll get on it for you. Okay, Thank June, you. here's your opportunity to tie it up. At the Helsinki Summit on Monday, Vladimir Putin bought a gift, brought a gift for Donald Trump. What was it? A a set of Russian nesting dolls depicting Putin, Trump, John Bolton, and Ivanka. B, a soccer ball from the World Cup, which had happened in Russia. C, a tin of beluga caviar from the Caspian Sea, which is legal in the U.S. because the beluga sturgeon is critically endangered. Is it a, the uh, nesting dolls, the soccer ball, or the caviar? I don't know for sure. Want a clue? Sure. Let's, let's okay, get this would be one. you, Andy, I'm assuming, yes? Don't blow it. Go ahead. Many critics saw Trump's performance at the summit as an own goal. Ooh, thank you very much. Ooh. Does that help you out? Yes, that would be very appropriate to this year's World Cup because there were a <laughs> lot of own goals scored. That was. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. It is tied at one. You know what my favorite clue of all time is? It was a clue in the New York Times crossword. It was said, JFK's successor. What's the answer, John? Three letters. I would normally say LBJ. Nope, that's not. That's what I was said. Yep. Do you have any idea what it is? No. A-R-I. Oh, Isn't very that brilliant? clever. Her yes, next husband. Aristotle. I love, I love oh, that. Oh, gosh. Oh, my God. Okay. I didn't get it either. It's okay. But I think that's why what you, what you say, June, is so true. That If you do crossword puzzles enough, then you, get, you recognize the patterns really quickly. You know these same words again. And that enables you to do it really, really quickly as opposed to... Why don't to you tell me how your mother completed the Sunday well, she, puzzle Well, she was obsessed again. with this. She I'm was, obsessed with it, yeah, too. Well, I can't I, do I it. She worked harder than you at okay, it, Jim. Fine. I think that's basically So it's one-to-one one at the end of one round. It, it, I may have been exaggerated. It may not have been an hour, but she was in contests. They would have contests among her friends to see who could finish it uh, faster. Anyway, here's question number three, John. A new program premiered on the TLC network this week. Critics are describing it as the grossest show on TV ever. Which one is it? A, Fatberg Autopsy, Secrets of the Sewers. This is a forensic look at the 130 tons of congealed fat that clog London's sewer systems. It contains diapers, deadly bacteria, condoms, and more. By the way, I don't know if that's the answer, but fatbergs are a real thing. For they those are a real thing. No, go ahead. We have real answers here, Jim. Okay, fine. Quiz. Go ahead. Number two, how the sausage is made an expose of food processing plants that make vegetarian meat substitutes, writes one TV critic. You'll never see soybeans <laughs> <laughs> the, same, the same way again. Or three, Dr. Pimple Popper. Oh, starring a dermatologist. Oh, God. Just read it, Marjorie. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to read this. Popping, read oozing, and lancing. Blackheads, oh. whiteheads, and cysts of all sizes, shapes, and colors. A, B, or C, Fatberg, Sausage, or Pimple Popper. Uh, I don't know, but I'll try it without a lifeline. Go ahead. I'm going to try C. You, you are, are correct. correct. What would the clue have been there, Helen, just oh, in case? Know. What would it have been had he asked for it? If this is true, this show is really popping. Oh, Thank you, bro. That's excellent. That is disgusting. It Who is disgusting. wants to watch that? By the way, I was asked to co-star on the show, but oh, okay. I was busy with okay. this show. So it is two to one there, June. Your opportunity to tie it going into the bonus round is now or never. Are you ready? All right. Fine. In honor of the 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park, a U.K. streaming service has erected a 25-foot statue 
uh, a tribute, I'm sorry, a statue tribute under London's Tower Bridge. What image from Jurassic Park is the statue depicting? Three options. A, a T-Rex soaring under a Jurassic Park banner. B, Sam Neill is his character, Dr. Alan Grant, running away from a raptor. Or C, Jeff Goldblum is his character, Ian Malcolm, resting shirtless and in a sexy pose. Is it A, B, or C? I, I heard about this one. It's Jeff Goldblum. It is. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> oh so, Andy, before we say farewell and thank you, what would your clue have been had we asked for it? Life has found a way to give us this incredible statue. Beautiful. Uh, let's hear it for Helen and Andy and the excellent <laughs> job they did. You're fabulous. You too. So, is there a, a before we get to the bonus round, gentlemen, is there a, a, a sort of a demo of people who are obsessed with this? I mean obsessed in a loving way, like you two. Who does this? No, I think uh, at our tournament we'll have people there of all ages, teenagers up through um, all ages. Uh, How'd you get hooked? How'd you start doing this, John? I started doing it, um, actually a teacher uh, colleague came to a teacher at our school who was constructing them. His name's David Corfoot. He's a very famous constructor, and he ended up teaching across the hall from me, and I had done them off and on. Uh, but I started talking to him about them and realizing that these were put together by people, and he was an interesting guy, so we got to talking about it. And so do the kids you teach or coach at Roxbury Latin, are they into this, or is this not a... A few of them are, yeah. yeah. But there are a couple boys who have written puzzles for the school newspaper. Oh, they have? That's and, great. And they'll talk to us. My, I should also say my colleague, Andrew Kingsley, who's here, uh, teaches with me, and he also runs the tournament with me hey, Andrew, as well. So I want to uh, certainly mention him. So uh, working with him has also been a great. Uh, June, June, where'd you get started? I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, I was going. I was going to ask if there was like a um, Michael Jordan or LeBron James or crossword <laughs> puzzle type people. Is there some real top of the game yes. person in terms of? There's sort of a Michael Jordan and a LeBron James. Okay. Um, I, I think you'd have to say the Michael Jordan is, is Dan Fair, okay. who has won the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament seven times. Wow. But the, the LeBron James is a kid named Eric Agard. He's not a kid anymore. He's 24, 25. He won it, this year's American Crossword Puzzle Tournament dethroning Dan in sort of uh, backboard-breaking fashion. He really sort of... Uh, dunked on the whole field at this really? year's tournament. Yeah, and he's amazing, and he's, he's much younger than the rest of us. So he's been solvers. doing it since he was quite young, we would um, guess. Yeah, probably in his diapers. <laughs> how often are your puzzles uh, available, sent out, when if they subscribe to your service? How often, Jim? One to two times a week. Oh, great. And what's the name of it again? It's called Outside the Box Puzzles. Outside and the Box Puzzles. Okay, ready for the bonus round? And here's the deal, gentlemen. Our quiz guests are experts, obviously, on all things crossword. But what about crosswalk? Our bonus <laughs> round will quiz them on the history of crosswalks. Are you ready, uh, gentlemen? All right. Let's go. Okay, Marjorie, you start it. Staff is no lifelines here, here, by the way. Okay, we'll switch. I'll do a, a, start with you, June. Our quiz guest, oh, we already read that. Crossbirds are at least, crosswalks are at least 2,000 years old, rather, as illustrated by the presence at Pompeii. Blocks raised on the road allow pedestrians to cross the street without having to step on the road. What were they avoiding? A, Italians at Pompeii believed walking too frequently in the road would dirty your offerings to the god Apollo. B, the road doubled as Pompeii's drainage and sewage disposal system, so they didn't want to step on it for obvious reasons. Or C, residents of Pompeii wanted to avoid Pennywise the clown hiding in the city's drains. Good question. <laughs> 
I'm going to try B. You are correct. Ding, ding, ding. It is B. I'm very good. You have a lead here. So, John, it's your opportunity to tie it, and then there'll be only one question that will decide everything. Okay. The first pedestrian crossing signal was invented in London in 1868, as I'm sure you know. It was a pole lit by a glass lantern with arms that were manually raised or lowered to signal the pedestrians. Why was it removed? A. Londoners were offended by the crossing signal, saying it insulted their intelligence and looked like a crucifix. B, the gaslight exploded and injured the operator. Or C, the gaslight attracted a plague-like swarm of moss. Would it be A, would it be B, or would it be C? Um, let's see. I think I'm going to go with A on that one. Why don't you try B so it's tied? <laughs> That's what he meant. He meant B, and that is correct. Okay. The gaslight exploded. Because the pressure's on. And injured. For this the last one, because they're By tied. By the way, can I do a shout-out to a friend of yours and mine who sure. used to work with me? Speaking of Crosswalk, our friend Jack Gray wrote one of the great, great collections of essays <gasps> oh, called Pigeon in a Crosswalk, yes. a Tales of Anxiety and Accidental Glamour. It is fabulous. It Jack is Gray, fun. you should check out the book. So here's the final question. Final question. And since we cooked it for John here, June, this is decides the whole kettle of fish. All okay, right. here we go, June. What is the name of the machine that paints the crosswalk? A, the pedestrian cross-stripping machine. Mm-hmm. B, the zebra Zamboni. Mm-hmm. C, cross me mama like a wagon wheel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or D, I'm in love with a striper? Striper. 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 As a stripe in the crosswalk. A, B, C, or D there. If it's not called the Zebra Zamboni, then it really should be. So I'm going to go with that one. That's wrong, but it's such a great answer. We're going to give that to you, too. Congratulations, (laughs) June. What is the answer? It's actually the pedestrian cross-stripping. or I'm saying this wrong. Stripping or striping? Striping. Thank you. The pedestrian cross-striping machine. I was mispronouncing it, so no wonder you got it wrong. There you go. Is the crossword phenomenon... Is getting hotter? Is it? I mean, what's? I, I think the internet has played a big role. Oh, in, I bet it and, has. And people doing it on their phones as well. Uh, I think that really lends itself. And besides the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, there are a lot of independent puzzles out there. A lot of people writing puzzles and making them available on their websites. Uh, like June, it's a subscription, but also free as well. So there's a lot of opportunities. Now the bad news on the crossword front is that Marjorie and I were convinced for years that it was going to slow our cognitive decline if we were to do crosswords. And now most of the researchers suggested there's a lot of fun, but there's not some physiological or whatever kind of impact. Do you buy that or what? Yeah, I don't know that it's the reason to stop doing the puzzles, though. No, it's not. I know that. <laughs> I understand that. Even though we would like yeah. to stop cognitive No, we decline. have to learn German or Japanese or French or something. We have to or learn exercise, a different language. Aerobic or exercise. exercise. That's right. Aerobic exercise. That's while you're right. doing your crossword. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, you may, may just have to cognitively decline. I think they made the only answer there, Jim. By the way, good luck. This is exciting. This is the second annual thing? Second year. We did it. It's and fabulous. We had a great we turnout last year, and we're, we're really looking forward to this. You can also order the puzzles if you can't make the tournament. You How do you do that? Same site? Same site. What is it, please? Boss Words. B-O-S. B-O-S words.org. And people can come to just be in the audience, right? Sure, yeah, you can come. And yeah. especially the final, I should say there's five puzzles, and then the top three contestants complete a final puzzle that's projected onto a big screen. They oh, that's have, great. They can't, they're at a computer, and they're, you'd be amazed at how quickly they will do this Sounds final puzzle. Fabulous. If you've never been to Roxbury Latin, it's worth going to it a visit. Indeed. It's a beautiful school. John and June, great to meet you. Congratulations. Thank you. And John Lieb and June Pak are two of the masterminds. 
excuse me, I have the hiccups, behind this year's Boss Words, the Crossword Puzzle Tournament, which happens, as we said, next Sunday, July 29th at Broxbury Latin School. John is one of the hosts of Boss Words, and he also teaches math and coaches football and baseball at Broxbury Latin. June Pock is also a, is a full-time dad and also a puzzle maker. He runs a subscription variety puzzle service outside the box puzzles. Thanks you, thank you guys both for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck next week. Or actually, it's two weeks. Two weeks. About, about nine days. Yeah. Okay, nine go, days. Go. Okay. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Of course, you can always find us on our podcast, which you can get through iTunes. Tune in Monday for the Reverend Zaria Monroe and Emmett Price, MIT economist John Gruber, and our TV guru, Bob Thompson. I want to thank our crew. And that was a great quiz, you guys. Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tereski, Male Boygon, Christina Biani, our engineer, Bill Acitelli. Our on-site engineer is Miles Smith. And special thanks to the folks at the Newsfeed Cafe and everybody who came down here. Thank you all for coming, by the way. We really appreciate your being Boston Public Library. Really, really appreciate that. Uh, You don't have television tonight, but Emily Rooney does. 7 o'clock, Beat the Press with Emily Rooney. It's going to be a great show. I am Marjorie Egan. I am Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again on Monday and have a wonderful afternoon.